Hello, and thank you for joining me on episode number one of the John Chats podcast. It's been a while, but it's here. I'd just like to say a couple of things before we go into the podcast. So yeah, firstly, thank you for being here. Thank you for your support. It means a lot. I hope that you enjoy listening to this podcast as much as I enjoy making the podcast. I have never met Jensen before in my life. In fact, I've never spoke to Jensen before um, until we decided to record the podcast together. So big, big thank you for Jensen's time that he gave us. This is not a short podcast and it'll be something that will follow a trend. I do like to talk a lot and there was a lot that we had to get through. So it's not a half an hour or hour podcast. This podcast is around about two hours and ten minutes. The last thing I just want to say is everything that is discussed within this podcast, we have never spoken about before. The podcasts that I will record are free-flowing. They are off the cuff. Nothing is scripted. Everything that you hear my reaction of is a genuine reaction because it's the first time that I'm hearing it as you hear it for the first time as well. So yeah, like I say, enjoy the podcast and thank you so much for tuning in. So hello and welcome to the John Chats podcast. Uh, this is episode number one uh, and unreal that I'm actually joined by a professional snooker player on my first one. So I will let him introduce himself to you. Uh, hello, my name's Jensen Kendrick, a professional snooker player. Um, thank you for having me. No, you're welcome. It's uh, it's quite something because obviously, as you're aware, when I put that post out about three or four weeks ago, I was looking to do podcasts and straight away, you, you offered your hand out and said, I'd like to do one. So phenomenal. So if we start by talking about maybe childhood, so obviously mm-hmm. today, just to let people know we're in sunny Stoke, yep. which used to be about 20 degrees today. Um, sure <laughs> don't think it is. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let, have you always lived in Stoke? Were you born in Stoke? Yeah. Um, born in Stoke, raised in Stoke, never moved out of Stoke. Um, obviously just turned 22 lived with my mum and dad for 21 and a half years, recently moved out with my girlfriend. Um, yeah, just... Got a little baby as well? Yeah, just arrived, well, a month ago now, so thankful for him. Mm-hmm. Um, we won't talk about the sleep because I did say to the other week in the message, didn't I, about sleep, and I was yeah. saying about how I was struggling, and you were saying that yours is sleeping like a dream? Yep, yep, waking once up in the night, I'm having about eight to nine hours, so... Oh Thank my you very God. much, little man. <laughs> Eight or nine hours. I, I honestly, if I get four or five hours, like that's a good night's sleep for me. I tell everyone about it to say people ask, Oh, how's he doing? I say he's fine and then I get the shocked face and think, Oh, it'll come. I'm waiting for the sleepless nights to come, <laughs> but I haven't had one yet. So I think teething might be your first protocol then. That's what I'm worried about. <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of obviously as he has born and raised in Stoke. Um, what was childhood like for you? Fantastic, brilliant. You know, um, mum and dad, my nan, all my family, fantastic people. Um, went to great schools, learnt a lot. You know, school-wise, education, everything else. Um, Did you like school as a kid? Uh, yeah, I loved it. Um, not so much. No, I say I loved it. I didn't love the education part. Yeah, it was more of the social. I loved. Yeah, with your um, mates and stuff. Some lessons I loved and whatever, but, you know, turning up, having a good crack with your mates. The teachers were brilliant. Yeah. It was like just having a day out, really. It was meant. Yeah. 
Yeah, and what, what sort of hobbies did you have and what interests as a child? What did you used to like doing? Um, from very young, I loved swimming. Okay. Loved swimming. Um, I'd, I'd go as much as I could. Yeah. Um, did you um, compete in swimming or anything like that? Yeah, I actually, I think I got spotted once just swimming when I was with my mum, I think it was. Um, and they said to me, oh, you need to come this like club thing. But because I was young, I just thought, oh, it's some kind of fun club. It turned out to be like Cossacks. Right. So I was swimming and doing that every morning and every night. And then I got called up to swim for England. I thought... And how old would you have been then when that would have come around? Uh, about 10, 11. Wow, okay. Yeah, right. so it was um, quite a weird experience because it was just something... You just loved doing it. And I yeah, loved yeah. doing it. And then next minute, I'm like... So what got you into like swimming? Like, what was it? What was it that attracted you to sort of swimming? It's a funny story. I, we did it in school, and I hated it. I wouldn't right. get in. I wouldn't jump in. I wouldn't get in. I wouldn't yeah. swim. Yeah. And then one day, my mum actually come into the school to watch me do it, and she says, "Right, you need to jump in." I says, "I'm not jumping." She says, "Jump in." So I jumped in the deep end, swam, 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 everything like that. And then the next day, I thought, you know what? I quite like this actually. So I was just jump. That's so all I'd do was just yeah. jump in the deep end, see how far I could swim under the water. Mm-hmm. And then I would like kind of think, oh, I'm going to try to do the whole length underwater. And then I started doing that with ease and no one else could do it. So I thought, oh, I'm pretty decent at this. Like. So would that be like one length underwater, like the professionals yeah, yeah. do you watch at the Olympics? Yeah, full full right, length okay. under the water when I was like wow. eight or nine. So it was, it was weird. Eight or nine, because I would, obviously I'm not a swimmer. Um, I have got size 15 feet and I was always told by a work colleague of mine that I should have been a swimmer because of the size of my flippers he called them not my feet <laughs> and I never I never really did it I never I don't like being underwater I don't like water up my nose I don't like no. water in my eyes but I can swim underwater but what I would think at the age of sort of 10 is the size of your lungs to hold your breath yeah. for all that time unless you were rapid yeah I think it was a bit of, a bit of both it was it was I could hold my breath for ages and ages and the fact that I was like the quickest around the town kind of thing. So to have a bit of both, it was like people thought I was some wonder kid because so, I could swim as far as I wanted under the water. It was weird. So when you say you were the fastest, would you, because I know sometimes when you go into swimming baths now and I take my daughters or whatever, mm. you have like a closed off bit for kids and you have the proper lanes for the serious swimmers yeah. that you just don't get in the way because you will get run over. <laughs> but what is what was that like for you? doing that back then were you sort of comparing yourself were you sort of thinking having your eyes on someone thinking go on i'll race you and see you look pretty fast i'll see if i can beat you yeah there was a well a lot of the kids were a lot older than me you know they, they were like teenagers um but i never really i never really looked at them and thought oh, i won't beat you it was just more of i just loved it that much that i didn't care what anyone else was doing until the the coach that we had said oh you know you're beating 15 16 year olds here and I thought, oh, does that mean I'm like pretty good? And he said, well, there's no one here that can beat you. You just <laughs> you just carry on. He says, I'll, I'll help you. But he said, just do whatever you're doing. Wow. So it was like, well, just jump in, swim another length. And that was so it. obviously within that potential age of 10, beating you know other kids that were around your age and a bit older up to 15, 16, what then happened with that? Because if you had the chance for yeah, sort of going. It was getting, I was playing football as well at the same time. Um, in golf, I, I was dabbling in everything, but it was like everyone would put me to be a swimmer when I was older, even though I was really good at football. And um, I went for trials at Stoke and 
stuff like that. It was like swimming was kind of my kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think it was when I was 11 or 10 or 11, I got I broke my leg playing football. Oh, wow. So I was in a cast for about... Was that during a match? Yeah. Ooh. So I was in a cast for about 10 weeks and then after that I was never the same. N- never had any confidence. Mm. Didn't play football after. Didn't swim after. Really? Yeah. So, that, so football stopped you from going places in swimming? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Isn't, isn't that crazy though when you think like, you know, I think as a kid you do like to do different things. You like mm. to climb trees. Yeah. You know, um, you like to go and play football with your mates, you know, then you find there's girls and stuff. But I think for you to have had that potential in swimming, done other things, and then that one thing, one day, yeah. breaking your leg mm. stops you from pursuing your swimming. Yeah, when, when I played football, there was there was two people that were always, there was a Saturday club, um, Martin and Kaylee Irvine, two of the best people I ever met when I was a kid and I still get on with them now. Mm-hmm. I think I started football when I was about four or five, dead young. And then right. the two people that brought me on, brought me confidence up. And all since I was five, six years old, Kaylee has always said, you're not going to have a normal job when you're old. You're going to do something to do with sport, whether you're a coach, a professional at a sport. She said swimming, golf, football, anything like that. And then when I broke my leg, I didn't think anything of it at all. It's just a slight break in the cast for 10 weeks, build the muscle up, go again. And they took my cast off and I went and played football about three or four weeks after that. Couldn't do it. Was that a match or training? Then? Just training. Just okay. I think it was with mates, but like a team of mates had, they asked me to go. Yeah. And I remember kicking the ball and I thought, I can't do it. Was it your kicking leg that you broke? Yeah. It was, right. Okay. So it was just a simple pass. I thought, my leg's going to go again. What about seeing like your leg did you break? From my shin downwards. So I did, I did part of my shin and my whole ankle. What What actually happened? Like What, what led to that? It was just a challenge. Was it a free? Was it one of them freak ones that you'd say, or fifty-fifty challenge? Right. No, nothing malicious or anything like that. Um, he just caught more of the ball and then followed through. Followed through, and did you know instantly? Did you like this? Is this? No, is it, it was a weird one. It, was, it happened, and the adrenaline must have just shot straight into me. Mm. And I've like got up and with a limp, so I'm thinking, oh, it's a bit kind of thing. I remember five minutes later, just falling to the ground, crying my eyes out. The worst pain I've ever felt. But you didn't feel it for no, for about wow. four or five minutes. So then, <laughs> Kaylee, still playing? Yeah, <laughs> I, I kicked, I kicked the ball. I thought, oh god, yeah, that hurts me. So Kaylee, it was Kaylee was actually there. She ran over, and says, "You're right." And I was just screaming, crying. Went into the changing rooms, took my sock off, and my bone was sticking out. And it was like, oh, was was your bone out of your skin? Well, I've still got a double bone on my ankle here, right, where it just hasn't gone back in place so it's just like kind of permanently out of place my ankle is so do you have pain now with your ankle yeah. or you do yeah if I, I, I some days are better than others but some days you know if i'm on it quite a lot do you do any running pain. or anything like that no I no because you can't because of it yeah just because of that yeah so how old were you when you did that then 11 10 11 that kind of age because you'd always think or i'd always think anyway that when you have children that break bones or whatever they're supposed to heal quicker mm. and better than as you get older. Yeah. So you know, I would think that, to an extent, no matter what you did when you're younger, it should have been right again. But no, no, it's just never. That ne- sort of changed your life, really, in a way. Yeah, it has. Because I, I, 
I was one of the fittest kids around, always running, obviously, football, swimming. I couldn't get much fitter. And since that happened, I just can't do anything to help it. I've been to physios, chiropractors, everything, and just nothing works for it. So. How, um, so if we go back to the age, just like 10 or 11, then when you did that injury, you were always fit, you were playing football, swimming. Mm-hmm. What? What was that? Can you remember much about what that was like to stay in all the time then? Because by the sounds of it, you were never in. Yeah, it, it was horrible. I was every single night, well, every morning, every night, I was at the house. I was either football or I was out with my mates or me and my mates were playing football. I was swimming swimming mornings and nights, certain days. I was running, keeping fit. I was, I was doing everything I could. I was never in the house, out with my mates, anything. And then it, it was... As soon as that happened, it was, what's this? Like, my life, as stupid as it sounds at that kind of age, it was like, my life had changed. I couldn't play football, couldn't mm-hmm. swim. I couldn't just leave the house to go down the road and down the park with my mates. It was like... Were you actually bed-bound then, or were you, could you get up? No, and, I, I could get up and do yeah. stuff, but I couldn't get up and do stuff I wanted to do. Yeah. So it was just wake up, try and fit my trousers over my cast and go to school, and then go home. Mm-hmm. I couldn't walk to school. Oh, we always used to walk to school, me and my mates couldn't yeah. walk to school, nothing. Because it's quite, see, I'm interested in the psychological side of things. Mm. So I find that quite interesting. And I always look for things that happen when you're younger to maybe inspire you when you're older. I mean, I know at the age of 10 or 11, I mean, we'll get onto that a little bit later about snooker, but I don't know if you'd even picked up a cue by that age, but if you went back to your younger self now at 10 or 11 and you were stuck in the house feeling absolutely frustrated, fed up, you know, didn't know what, whether you're going to play football again or whatever, but would you then have been shocked if you just said, I oh, don't worry because you'll be a professional snooker player one day? Um, I probably still would have had that. I don't know what the word is, but still would have felt the same even though someone would have said that to me. Yeah. Only yeah. because of that was my life. Yeah. Kind of it at that age, you know, at ten or eleven everyone wants to be a professional football player or everyone wants yeah. to be some sort of sportsman. Yeah. So to have that kind of taken away from me was even though if someone did come and say, you know, ten years later you're gonna be a professional Would it make a difference? Player, I'd have still thought, Well, what about football? What, what foot- about yeah. being able to just nip the part with my mates and that kind of stuff. It was, yeah. it, it was really frustrating, yeah. So if we go back to football then before you had this injury, um, what position did you used to play in football? I had two, but weird, weird two positions. I was a centre-mid and a goalkeeper. Okay. So for one team, I played centre-mid. Yeah. The other team, I played goalkeeper. Okay. But um, when I got trials at Stoke, I was I was playing outfield, centre-mid. So you were centre-mid then? Yeah. Yeah. And what... What was that like? I mean, going to Stoke, I mean, are you a Stoke City fan, I guess? No. You're not? No. Who do you support? Arsenal. Okay. Only because one of my mates plays for them. And I tell okay. that to everyone because people think I'm a glory hunter. Cause they're doing so that. when you were, say, little, and you were before 10 or 11 when you did this injury, did you have a team then before your mate played for Arsenal or did you not really? Did you just love playing it? I used to go Port Vale, um, but that was more of... Me, my dad, my brothers, sisters, all their mates. We, yeah. There was about, God, about 14, 15 of us who had season tickets. Really? Every year. Wow. So I, 
I did support him, but at that age, it was just going watch football. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. it was it was between Vale and Stoke, and yeah, I, I just loved going watch. You know, in, yeah. in the big stadiums and stuff. Mm. At that age, it's like. Do you remember the first time you ever went to a stadium and you get up the steps and you look onto the pitch? Do you remember that? Yeah, I felt sick. Did you? I remember it. And <laughs> we went. I remember the game. Um, <coughs> sorry. Stoke sorry. were playing Man City. Do you remember the Peter Crouch goal? The famous Peter Crouch goal where he was chested it down, flicked it up and Vaguely. Volleyed. Yeah, vaguely. It was that game. I remember walking into the stadium thinking, oh, I thought quite a lot of people here. And we walked up the stairs, I saw the pitch, and I felt sick for about 20 minutes. And I said to my dad, oh, we're going to have to go home, I feel sick. But I didn't realise mm. that it was like mm. everything going on. Mm. And five minutes into the game, was it five? About five minutes into the game, I had a drink, and the crowd started while up, while up. Yeah. Crouchy scored that goal. And the next day, I've, um, my mum and dad went to go to paper. I was front page in the paper because of, <laughs> because of the Crouchy goal. But I had a wobbly front tooth. Right. So my tooth was off hanging off and the tooth <laughs> and my front tooth come out about ten minutes after after that goal. That's incredible. So it, it was quite a funny first big stadium experience. That's incredible. Yeah. I I remember mine, um I mean I'm a Liverpool fan. I am a Mancunian. I'm born and bred in Erston Davian, which is near the Trafford Centre, if you know that. Yeah. But a long story short, I was basically I don't know what you call it, like, I can't think of the word of it, but you're um, you're made by someone else, like brainwashed, I'd say. Yeah, yeah. brainwashed by someone else who was my uncle. Uh, it was his friend down below in Wales. He was a Liverpool fan. Mm. And I was a United fan to the age of six or seven, I'll be honest with you. <laughs> and I know, which is even worse. <laughs> I'm hated by Scouts as a Mank, and I'm hated by Mank as a Liverpool fan, so I can't win either way. <laughs> but um, my friend at school um, called Brendan, him and his sister used to have season tickets at Old Trafford. Mm. So he said to me, do you want to come along to a match? So obviously I'm going to say, yeah. I was probably about um, about 12 or something like that. So I'm 39 this year. So United would have been in their absolute pomp. It oh, would have yeah. been 90s. It would have been your Ryan Giggs's, oh, you know, yeah. the Patrick Vieira, Roy Keane scenarios. Mm. And it was obviously Old Trafford my first game. I was a Liverpool fan back then as well, but it, I went along with him. And it was the famous goal with Freddie Lundberg, where, do you remember he had it on the halfway line and he headed it, chested it, kneed it, kicked it, and then put it in off oh, the wing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, I was there for that. Oh, really? Yeah. But I, I remember, like you, I wasn't as good as you at football, but I did like playing football. And like you, I did play goalkeeper yeah. and I played striker. I couldn't dribble with the ball, I couldn't pass the ball but I could smack the ball from anywhere and it'd probably go in. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I remember going to Old Trafford as a kid with Brendan and walking up the steps and looking out onto the pitch was crazy mm. because if you haven't been to a match before and you watch it on TV, the pitch looks ginormous. Mm. But when you get there, it's tiny. It does. And yeah. I'm like, what's this? Yeah. Where's the rest of it? Yeah, it's... Because... It, it, when you do watch it on the telly, it's like the Etis, it looks like it's gone like hundreds and hundreds of yards. Mm. And then you sit there and you're looking around at everyone. You look up and there's about 15,000 people. You look to your left, there's another 20,000. And then it's mental. Yeah. I don't I don't understand. Like obviously with, with snooker, playing in front of like a thousand or a few hundred. Yeah. How they go out there 
knowing it's on telly in front of millions and you've got 80,000 people screaming and shouting at you. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've got to be honest. Um, I used to have a season ticket at Anfield. I was very lucky. I'll give him a shout out. He's called Dave Bradshaw. And I met him when he used to do steward at the Manchester Evening News Arena. And I've never been to many Liverpool matches in my life. And mum took me to my first one, which is a European match a long, long time ago. And it was phenomenal. And then Dave just sort of said to me, oh, you're a Liverpool fan, you don't get talking to people. Normally with me, it's always, who do you support? That's the yeah. first start of conversation. And he said, Liverpool, but I've got a season ticket. I don't use it. It's for me and my son. I think at that time, his son was about, say, three or four. So he obviously wasn't going to go to matches. Mm. First row with a cop, left-hand side of the post. Oh, wow. So it was like a premium seat. Yeah. And I'm not proud of it, but to abuse players. <laughs> so John Terry, quite a few times I've had words to him. <laughs> but if I look back now, and as I say to you, like sports psychology, and I look back at when I was having a go at him and saying, you know, some really bad words to him, he wouldn't even, it'd be like I wouldn't even say that. It was mm. like, but he could hear me. It's like me from you now, oh, distance yeah, yeah. across the table. That's how close it was. And he wouldn't even batter an eyelid. So you're right. These players that go, I mean, okay, you know, if we if we break down football to snooker, football's a team game. Mm. So if you're having a bad game, it can get hidden in the team mm. sometimes. And it's not always you. Mm. But I think with snooker, golf, tennis, things like that, there's nowhere to hide. No, no, no. And, you know, I think with, with football, I mean, there's a lot of negative things that we won't really get into in football, um, but there's a lot that footballers have to deal with. And I think the favourite saying with everyone is, ah, they get paid 200 grand a week, they get on with it. And yeah. it's, it's, I think it's just totally the wrong way to look at it. Oh, massively, massively. No matter if you're getting 200 grand a week and if you're getting hurled abuse in week in, week out, every day because, you know, social media these days. Mm, yeah. mentally if you're not 100% it doesn't matter if you're getting 200 grand a week or 200 quid a week exactly. it's going to affect you yeah. in different ways and I mean social media has got its positives and it's got its negatives I mean the positive for one is it's brought us there today Exactly. the negatives is I think we all know there's trolls there's people that yeah. sit out there and the world can sometimes feel like a very bitter place with mm. people and obviously one of the reasons for starting this podcast was to try and put a bit of positivity out there and make mm. people understand that it's not all about that. Mm. You know, we can kind of help each other in ways by, in, in this case, with the podcast is sharing experiences. So after the breaking, if you like, and not be able to play football anymore, is that when you'd say you probably found snooker? Yeah, um, it was my dad, actually. Um, I went into, it was just before I went into high school, uh, my dad was a big player, still is a big player. Um, what sort of level does your dad play at? Does he play for like leagues and stuff? or No, not leagues anymore. He's a very good club player. Right. Um, he can not break in, you know, 50, 60, 70s in. Yeah. Just a good snooker player, really. Yeah. Um, he took me up to Burslem Snooker Club, not far from here. Yeah. Um, on one Sunday, and there was an under-16s tournament on. Never picked a queue up in my life. Watched it on Tally. You'd never played before that? Never played. Well, you wouldn't have done with your into football, swimming? No, no. Yeah. Um, so we went and the, my dad knew the chap who runs the, the club. And he says, oh, does your son want to play in the tournament? So my dad comes to me. I says, oh, yeah, don't know how to play. So I had an hour lesson with the guy. 
What, that ran the club? Yeah. Right. Just literally teaching me. What, on the day before you played? Or before on that? On the day, turned up. On the day, on the day. okay. Give me an hour lesson. Just literally how to stand out of all the queue and just hit balls, hit balls. And um, I was putting a few balls and then he says, right, okay. I think there's about 20-something players there. Were they young? Oh, under-16s, weren't they? Under-16s, yeah. yeah. So he says to me, um, right, Jensen, you're on this table. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't have a cue, so my dad got me his cue. Mm. Went on and I beat this kid. <laughs> so I was like, oh. But so how I, old was he, the kids that you played? About 14, 15. What were you, 12, 13? Yeah, yeah. Well, just doing 12, yeah. <laughs> so um, There you are, and again, you see, not just beating the swimmers that are five years older than you now. I know. Beating stupid so, players who are two years older. He never bit some cue. So I didn't, I didn't know the rules, didn't know what the colours, even how much they added up to. <laughs> beat him. And my dad comes to me and he says, oh, my dad was a bit shot, blah, blah, blah. So the chap comes up and he says, oh, Jensen, you're on this table. Same thing again. But it was at that point where I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know what the scores meant. I didn't know if I was winning, yeah. losing, nothing. I was just hitting balls. <laughs> Next thing, I'm in the final. <laughs> and no word of a lie, there was about 30 of these parents watching, knowing that I'd never picked a cure for my life. Amazed. And I made a 29 break. And I remember it because wow. the highest break of the day was 31 by a kid that had been playing for four years. Yeah. I beat this kid in the final. And I just looked at my dad and said, Dad, I love this. And he says, really? I says, yeah. And I said, not yeah. just because I'd won. Yeah, yeah. I said, but yeah. I, I just loved everything about the game. So, so, I, so hang on a minute, right? So you'd never played snooker before. Yeah. And you went straight to a full-size 12-foot by 6 table. Yeah. And started beating kids that have been playing for four years. Yeah. I'll be honest with you, the first time I ever went on a full size table, I think I potted about three balls in about three hours. <laughs> Honestly. I couldn't get my head around it. No, it was um it was weird because it when you first play something or do something, you expect to be bad. But because I didn't expect anything because it was the first yeah, time. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, get I didn't know what was going on, I didn't know what was a good pot. I didn't know safety or potting or anything mm. like that. Mm. I, I literally, I remember, I can't remember his name, but the chap that run the club, I literally remember him telling me, just hit balls. And that's what I was doing. And I won the tournament and, and obviously never looked back then. And then it started like once a week on a on a Sunday, me and my dad would play. And then yeah. it was like on a Saturday and a Sunday. And then it was like, oh, we'll go midweek. And then it turned into every night. Do you so, think that when you had the passion for swimming and football, do you think that then shifted over to the snooker side then for it? Yeah. Do you think you started to really get the passion to want to go in? Yeah, de- probably more. Probably more, more than wow. the swimming and the football. It, I think it, because from a very young age, I've been a very independent person. I was very mature at a young age. Yeah, Swimming is obviously an individual sport. Yeah. Um, football isn't. Yeah. So it, it yeah. was when I was playing snooker and started to become okay at a young age, because I was on my own so much, I, I was with myself, if you kind of get what I mean. It, it was just me. Yeah. So instead, I do get what you mean. Instead of, you know, football where it is, yeah. you can have yeah, yeah. a really bad game. Yeah. And when, mm. for, in my head, it even at that young age, because I was very mature. It was you. 
it was me. Yeah. And I can kind I'm I'm very good at blaming myself and knowing what I've done wrong. Okay. So even at 13, after a year of playing, mm. I would play out. I wouldn't I wouldn't be able to make you know a 40, 50 break. Yeah. But I knew what to do to become better. Make it. And I I would I would go back and I'd analyze everything. And yeah. even at that young age, I was kind of switched on to think. Mm. So the passion kind mostly did come from knowing that it it was me. Yeah. Everything I do on that table is me. No one else can help me. They can help you off the table in yeah. a sense, but yeah. if I miss a pot, it's me. If I pot that, I've done that. So if, if we go back to, um, say you're 22 now, yeah. um, you were 12 when you first started playing, how, because I mean, for me now, when I look to improve, I look to social media, I look to YouTube, I look to, you know, a lot of different coaches out there mm-hmm. that can show you how to do different shots. There's snooker coaches out there. If if I'm right in thinking, you probably didn't have that back then, did you, YouTube and stuff, no? Um, or how did you? In fact, that's a question, actually, isn't it? How, how did you find out these things? If you're new to a sport, how did you know this was wrong and I need to do that this way instead of that way? How did you know that? So I, I did have a coach uh, by the name Mark Ball. Um, he just helped me, you know, with your stance and how to hold. He, he never really helped with shots. So what I would do is... I'd go to the club here, or I'd be at home, and I would watch snooker on the tally. Yeah. And I'd pause it after every shot, and I would play that shot until I got it right. Wow. So, so I would. So let's say, for example, Mark's always playing a safety shot where he's got use a bit of side, come off three cushions. Yeah. I would pause the tally. I'd go and play that shot until so I got right. it absolutely perfect. <laughs> wow. And, but because it was on tally, you you couldn't see how we played it. Yeah. So with certain shots, obviously, they don't change the angle. They don't yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I would see it and I'd play it and I'd be miles off and then I'd think, right, okay. If I do, what have I got to do to adjust yeah, that? Yeah, so then wow. that's when, I, even at that young age, even not playing loads, I started to learn side and wow. like kind of really big mechanics in the game that you don't learn yeah. until years later. No, I don't think you do. So like at that age, that's what I would do, screwing the ball, I'd, I'd really look at where he was hitting the ball mm. and I'd play, play, play that shot until I've done it and then I'd go, right, okay, what's his next shot? Press play. <laughs> He'd play that shot, okay, press pause and then I'd wow. do that, do that. So it was like... It, so in a, in a weird way, even though you're watching professionals play, you're sort of self-teaching yourself there. Yeah, so, so obviously the coaches helped me along the way but on the table in my head I felt so much more comfortable learning it how I wanted to learn it. Yeah, so yeah. the shots... I saw on tally, mm. there wasn't a doubt in my mind to say, I can play that. Yeah. I can do that now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I'd yeah, go and yeah. do it. Yeah. And it was like, okay, I've done that one. What's the next one? So how how long, like, so how long would you spend doing this? Would you go through a whole match of watching somebody play and doing every shot, or would you just go through certain ones? Uh, I'd go through certain frames. Right. So one day I'd, I'd think, right, okay, potting. Right. So I'd, I'd watch, you know, someone make 140 yeah. and I'd copy every shot. I'd put yeah. the balls where the balls were on the table. Yeah. Completely replicate it and try and play the exact shots. Mm. And then a couple of days later, I'd think, all right, okay, I've heard about this safety. Yeah. Let's see what the safety is about. Let's and, do a bit of that. And then I'd see, like on YouTube, I would like type in 
best snooker safety shots and then mm. I'd, I'd do the exact same thing and try and play them. Yeah. That's kind of how I taught myself to pot balls, not to play the game, yeah, yeah, but how to yeah. pot balls and use screw and use yeah. top and all that. I think there's a lot of different aspects in the game that maybe people that have seen snooker before or the dads watch snooker or the granddads watch snooker, they don't actually understand the um, complexity of the game. No, like no. there's so many different sides to it that, you know, if you were just an average Joe watching snooker for the first time, thinking it's a bit like pool, just on a bigger table with a lot more balls, mm. it couldn't be further from pool, could it really? No, no. You, you, well, I still get it now. The, the amount of people that will watch snooker, and because it looks so easy, they think they can come in the club and do it. Mm. You know, we get people in the club now that, that still do it. They watch the World Championships. And they'll come in and think, oh, did you see that shot they played? Yeah, yeah, oh, looks easy. And they miss it by about four foot. <laughs> and I'm thinking, you, it's the hardest sport in the world. You can't expect to do stuff like that. Watching yeah. it on the tally, they, make, they do make it with the easiest sport in the world. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it is when people start to think, oh, I can do that. And they and try it and they realise they can't do it. And then yeah. you see the faces and you're like, what? I think snooker for me... The reason why it's such a difficult game, not only the mechanics of the game and how you're feeling, how much tension you've got that day, what you're carrying mentally and stuff like that, it's a complete no reply, no right to reply sport. Mm. Because if I'm playing you and you knocking 147 break, which is the maximum break you can get in snooker, I have to sit there and watch you knock in that mm. and I can't then have a go at you. Like with tennis, mm. if you do a really good slam shot against me or in golf you know you get a hole in one I can still have a shot back to your tennis shot or have a chance at a hole in one myself in snooker you really can't can you no no you well really you're relying on the other person to make a mistake mm. in that sense you know you, safety battles you make a mistake and they pot a long red it's your fault yeah you have to you know reap the consequences of that if you're a po- like if we play, then I I've made hundred, and next frame I put a long red, and make another hundred. You can't do anything no. about that. You've I was got, watching you pot. You've got, <laughs> yeah, you've got to sit there mentally, physically, and think, what can I do? Mm. There's nothing that you can do to stop that. So, so going into that, then into the what do you do, and the that you're sitting there for so long, watching your opponent with with snooker. I guess actually I'll ask this question first, really. With snooker, isn't like football, and it's not like swimming. It's maybe a sport that at the age that you started at 12, people wouldn't really know a lot about it. So how? So between your friends and, and family and stuff, I mean, obviously, yeah, your dad plays snooker and stuff, but how, how does that sort of then to them in terms like you saying, I'm going to play snooker now, how did you find that? It was very weird. No one had heard of snooker. Mm. None of my friends watched or heard of snooker. So it was hard to explain to them how you can transition from football to snooker. Mm. Going from a team sport, which is energetic, you're running around for 90 minutes to summit, you know, you can be 30 stone and play. None of my my friends were very supportive, but they didn't know what I was doing. Yeah. So when, when I used to say to him, oh, what are you doing after school? Well, I'm going to the club for six, seven hours. Why? <laughs> to practice. Yeah. Why do you need practice? 
and I'm thinking, you just don't. They don't get it. You either get it, yeah, or you don't get it. Can't. Yeah. It, it, it is one of them. And I'm still friends with a lot of them from school. Yeah. And obviously they get it now. They see the hard work and everything. But it it was just a weird a weird time because you know they were playing football and stuff, and I was stuck in four walls hitting balls with a wooden stick. Mm. They didn't even come down and, and watch you or play you? No, or, no. no? They didn't have any interest in, not, in not it at all? From, not from that age, no. I think because at that age you don't take things that seriously. No. So if I, when I said to them, oh, I'm going to the club to practice got a tournament, yeah. it was it was kind of like, oh, well, he's just going at balls with a stick. For seven hours yeah. <laughs> while we're and playing then, football. And then coming up to the end of school when... They kind of realised I was taking it this serious, mm-hmm. and they were saying, "Oh, what are you doing this weekend? Well, I've got a tournament. All right, okay." And then they'd start asking about it. Oh, how much do you win? And you'd say this much, like eight, nine hundred quid, mm-hmm. and then the faces would drop. Yeah, because that's a lot like, of money in it when you're that age. Yeah, like fourteen, fifteen, and they were saying, yeah. oh my god. Yeah. And then I think that's kind of when they realised that. Yeah. I wanted to do this, and they kind of realised, oh, snooker is a sport. It's not just a thing that granddads do yeah. as I used to get called when I was in school <laughs> <laughs> when when you were playing snooker as you said before and you were going through the shots and you're watching professionals play it from that very very young age of first picking up a cue going to a tournament never having played before had an hour lesson before which is absolutely incredible it sounds a bit of a strange question this but maybe not did you always think you'd be a pro at that even at that age no you didn't no okay it, it, at that age, it, just a love for it. It was just a love for yeah. potting balls, right? And for quite, I think it was a couple of years up until I was about thirteen, fourteen. I never understood what a pro was, what right, a okay. professional snooker player was. Yeah, I yeah. just thought it was right. You're really good at it. You play here. Yeah, that's what I thought it was. Yeah. So when people said about, oh, he's this guy's turning pro, I'm thinking, oh, kind of okay. Yeah, I'll you weren't there yet. Yeah, I'll just yeah. crack on with what I'm doing and they can turn pro. Mm-hmm. And then it was when I moved to this club, um, yeah. a lad called Brandon Sargent, who was on the tour. Heard of Brandon. He did very well in the championship tour, is it called? The one that's below the pro one. He did very well that year, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, he, he won it. Yeah, he did. So yeah. It was when I, the first day that I come here, was weirdly enough the first day he made a maximum at 16. <laughs> wow. So, so were you the same age? Were you 16 then as no, well? No, he, he was a couple of years older than me, Brandon was. Yeah. So he he was like the talk of the country, really. Where's he, he based? Is he based near here or not? Yeah, he is. Oh, he is? Yeah, he only lives 10 minutes from. Does he practice here with you as well? or? He doesn't play anymore. Oh, he doesn't play anymore? No, no. Oh, wow. But yeah, he... What? He, he, he did so well in that, in the lower league tour. Like, yeah. What? I think he got on the tour and... He, he, he did struggle. He, yeah. He'll be first to admit he struggled. And then he went back to school after he fell off the tour and didn't get back on. Wow. Um, Shame. Yeah, but with him, it was watching him play and him being the talk of, well, he was the talk of the world. He, did he, you know him? Yeah, really well. You did? Did he go to school with him or anything? Or not? No, no. First the first time I met him was here. Right. And we, oh, was well, he based we, here as well? Yeah. Okay, right. We right. played together for five, six, seven years. Wow. Um, so you were playing with him when he was winning all these challenge tour events yeah, and stuff, and he, then he got onto the yeah, pro circuit. It was 
every tournament we went, pro or many tournaments, people's, people's faces would drop when, when they saw him walk in. Wow. Because he would win. <laughs> he, he would, we'd, we'd go Derby, Leeds, anywhere like that. As soon as he walked through the door, I, I remember a tournament in, it might have been Leeds, actually. We walked in and there was four chaps standing at the bar, didn't, didn't know who they were. And um, they've entered the tournament, saw Brandon walked in and asked for the money back and went. <laughs> no. Yeah, because, they, because, because they, they were confident enough to think they could win it. As soon as Brandon walked in. But not when he saw him. No. Wow. Yeah. So he was he was the first player I remember having a conversation with, obviously, because we, we started here. Mm. And that was when it kind of clicked to think, right, this is the standard I need to be. Yeah. Because everyone was... So it set a benchmark for you? Yeah, it was. Yeah. You know, Brandon Sargent's going to be pro, Brandon Sargent this. And with you saying before then, sorry to interrupt you, but with you saying before then about... Um, you didn't know about being pro. You didn't know anything about that. You now did. Mm. And was this now something that you were trying to strive for yourself? Yeah, yeah, it was the first day I walked in this club, Dave Deeks, who owns this place, um, sadly passed away. He was probably one of the most well-known people in the snooker. Everyone knew Dave. Yeah. Older, older chap. Yeah. And I walked in, never met anyone here before, and he says, oh, so you're the new kid on the block. And that'll always stick with me because it, because he'd seen that many players through his years. Yeah. Your, your Brandons. Yeah. When he was younger, John Higgins, Alex Higgins, he'd seen all these players at a young age. Yeah. And for him to say that, it was like, wow, okay. Yeah. I'm actually I got a name. I've, I've got a name. Yeah, I've got a reputation. Yeah. And then I played Brandon, got battered 20 nil, so that <laughs> went out the window. So but that was shortly for that time. Yeah. yeah. But it, it, it was, it. Brandon was the first name and person who I'd seen in person mm. where he was the talk. Yeah. He was the, he's going to be pro, he's going to do really well, he's this, he's that. Yeah. And it clicked in my head and thought, right, okay, bit yeah. of competition now. You, you know, you've got me here, I've got you here. So would you would you then come in and practice with him? Would that be your practice sparring partner? Yeah, basically. Right. There was another lad here, Josh. He doesn't play anymore. He, he didn't make it pro, but he was still a very good player. So there was kind of us three. Um, so we, we, we just practiced, got each other better. And then the standard was just that high with us here that we went to tournaments and there was always either me, Josh or Brandon winning. How would you travel to them tournaments being that sort of age? Would you go my with dad, parents? Right? Yeah, my dad would always... My dad's, Tried you all down? Yeah, my dad's always followed every single tournament I've gone. Would he be after Brandon for the fuel money or not? Uh, no, no, <laughs> no. We, we we let Brandon off quite a few times. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, you, I could, I, from twelve up until now, I can probably count on one hand how many tournaments my dad's missed, and that's probably only due to being ill mm. or having to work. Yeah, but yeah, he's he's come near enough every tournament. So, your dad was a big sort of influence. Would he come here when you were practising or I guess not if he was working or... Yeah, he was... Um, well, he used, used to work full-time. He's semi-retired now. But when, in the school time, my mum worked at the school that I went to. Okay. So when I finished school, she'd finish work and she'd bring yeah. me here. My dad, that was at about half past three. Yeah. My dad had finished work at five, come straight here every single day. And stay till half past nine, ten o'clock. Wow. We'd go home, and then weekends we'd come up here at ten o'clock on Saturday morning, stay till eight o'clock at night. Yeah. 
Saturday and Sunday. And then if there was a tournament, obviously my dad would take me. Yeah. Spend all weekend away. How how far would you go to tournaments? And and then as well, would it have been the under sixteen sort of juniors? Would it have been that sort of level? Yeah, when we first started up until probably about fourteen, it was mostly under sixteens, eighteens, and twenty ones. Yeah, we probably ventured into the men's kind of stuff once or twice, but that was mm. just to see what it was like. Um, but yeah, we near enough every weekend we'd be Leicester, Derby. You know them, them kind of places. There's a lot down south, isn't there? Have you ever gone down south before, or have you not gone that far? Uh, not so much that far, just because with the travel and the hotels and stuff, the money was money. Yeah, you know, yeah. Get, get and how did you used to do in those tournaments so many years ago? Were your dad did you used to do quite well in them? <clears throat> yeah. So the the EPSB, which was the um, the organisation for like England snooker. Yeah. It was a big leap from just your local prom to this kind of thing. The, yeah. These tournaments were like the kids that were coming on. That know, had the potential to be professional. Yeah, yeah, so like with the under-16s, there was about there was about five or six different under-16s that would win because they were that good. So yeah. you had that bracket and then you had the newcomers, so myself, yeah. and then the under-18s, you had a couple more, and then under-21s. So at the yeah. start, it, it was tough. Yeah. Um, but you you just settle in, and after four or five tournaments, I started, you know, getting to a quarter final, and then it was a semi, yeah, and then you get to a final, and and then when you win one, it's kind of like everyone puts you in that bracket. Then you st- you start being what Brandon Sargent was. You yeah. start being feared. You start being talked yeah. about. So yeah. with the um, there was the under twenty one tour, which was around England. And there used to be 40, 50 players on there. And the first time I got promoted to that was when Brandon was on it. And right. um, people like Josh Cooper and Tom and all them kind of people. And it it was just a complete different gravy. Yeah. You know, you've gone from someone's made a 50 break, oh my God, oh my God. So then now you've had 200s knocked in against you. Yeah. And you're going home. Yeah. It's like, wow, this Big is serious. Yeah, yeah. But now I had about two seasons on there, pretty much getting pumped, mm. just about staying on that kind of tour. Mm. And then one year, the year after that, got to maybe a final, finished 10th or 12th. And then the year after it was, this is Jensen's year. I won, I think, four out of six events. Mm. And that was it. That was like the kind of, I'm used to winning now. Yeah. Without sounding cocky, this, yeah, is, yeah. this is me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My yeah. None, none of you can be. You got me. that belief and confidence from winning. Yeah. Which is obviously probably natural. What kept you playing when you said you were getting pumped? What kept you coming back? Because I, I can imagine a lot of people would start to go up a level in any sport, but mm. especially snooker, start to get centuries against them and start thinking, this is not for me. I'm not used to this. No, it was. At this time, it was both. I'm 13, 14, so I was thinking I was playing well. And then, you know, these people knocking centuries in and getting pumped, it was like, well, why am I getting pumped? I, I'm as good as these. And I'd come back to the club and um, I, I just sat there and thought, well, what's happening? What's happening? And then I kind of realised I'm nowhere near as good as them. I need to put some serious work in here to get to that level. And it it was just learning, I think. Learning and the love of the game. 
Mm. I think if if I didn't have as much love for the game then, I obviously wouldn't be playing. Yeah. Because getting pumped by people the same age as you. Yeah. But they're knocking centuries in, and you're knocking the fifty or sixty in. Yeah. It's like, well, why aren't I that good? Yeah. So it was, I think, just having so much love and wanting to become better that yeah. kept me going. Could you could you see like when you were practicing back at the club? Could you see there was progression there? And you were starting to get near, but maybe not beating those players. So yeah. in, in what I'm trying to say in essence really is, in the future, you could see that you'd start to beat them players. Yeah, so yeah. playing Brandon here, you know, like I said, just getting pumped. I remember getting pumped 20-0 multiple times. Mm. And then it was 19-1. So that yeah. one frame I took was like, oh, okay. Yeah. And then it was like 18-2. Yeah. 18 Two and I've had a 60 break quite easily. Oh, right, okay. 17-3. Oh, I've had mm. two 60 breaks. And then in your edge, you're like, okay, if I keep going at this pace, at one point it's going to swap and the results are going to start changing in these kinds of tournaments. Yeah. I think the mental side of it um, can often outweigh the ability. I always think, and I'm not a professional snooker player at all, in fact, I'm nowhere near one, but I would always say in a sport, that for me, it's probably forty percent ability and sixty percent in your head for me. Definitely. I th- I th- well, I think with snooker, it's probably eighty percent mental. Yeah. Twenty percent ability. You, you do have to obviously have that natural ability and the shots and whatever. But this sport is is so brutal mentally. Mm-hmm. If you're not a hundred percent confident or a hundred percent on it, yeah. Most of the time, get destroyed. You've got no chance. Yeah. If you if you've got even a slight doubt in your mind about the shot. Yeah. Nine times out of ten, you'll miss it. Yeah. If you miss that shot, like say on the tour now, that's it. Game yeah. over. Go sit in your chair. Have twenty yeah. minutes in your chair, thinking about that shot you've just played, mm. and then that stems onto the next frame. Then would would you ever go to a competition? Say, for example, in Leeds. At that age, would you ever? Because I'm guessing your dad used to probably pay you into tournaments back yeah. then. So would you ever sit there in your chair and would you ever think, my dad's brought us this tournament, he's sacrificing his time, he's giving me his money to enter it. Did that ever come into your mind when you were playing or not really? Um, not really, no. I think back then it, it was just the playing. Yeah. In my mind it was just get on the table and play. We've mm. travelled this far, just just. Play, do what you need to do. Yeah, you know, I I didn't have expectations of winning. So you still didn't then. Not winning tournaments or anything. No, it, it was just right Love play. Yeah. And then I think them kind of thoughts started appearing when people would start talking about me. Mm. So the tournaments that we'd go, it would be all right. Jensen's a great player. Oh, did you have a ton last week? Kind of thing. Yeah. So I'd be playing and I'd go one nil down and then I'd start thinking, oh, my dad's brought me in now. What? Come on, you, you're better than this. You're better than this. Yeah. It makes you worse and worse starting thinking you should be beating these people. Did you, did you feel at that time maybe that if you didn't win or you didn't make a good account of yourself in a tournament, did you feel like you'd be letting your dad down? Did they yeah. have that responsibility? Even even though my dad said, just go and enjoy you, in the back of my mind he says, we've travelled all this way. I've played rubbish. Yeah. I should be beating these people. Yeah. It's like you've wasted your day. Yeah, I've wasted my day. And it was like I felt bad for losing. Yeah. And I knew I shouldn't have. Yeah. 
So moving on from that, that was around 12, 13, 14. You left school, I'm guessing 15, 16, like most kids do. What happened then? Left school, played snooker full time. Yeah. Didn't, didn't even have a second guess of it. Didn't want to go to college, you know, no. uni plans, nothing like that. Absolutely nothing, no. Just solar, laser focused on, I'm going to be a snooker player. Yeah, we left. I remember the last GCSE we did was on Tuesday. Yeah. We finished that, I think that was an afternoon one. Finished that at one. By half past one, I was in here at Ball. <laughs> And that was it. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't even go back to school to get my GCSE results. I was going to say that to you. Did you even bother going to get them? No, I, didn't I, care. I, I was in Germany, I think, for a tournament. Right, okay. So I never, as soon as that last GCSE, never thought about school or college, uni, nothing like that. So we've gone from now playing tournaments in this country, travelling to Derby, Leeds, Leicester with your dad. We've now moved on to going to Germany. Yeah, so it was... While I was in school, so 14, it was moving on to, oh, there's a tournament in Germany kind of thing. And then 15 was kind of when, well, just after my 15th birthday, I made my first 147. So it was like massive wow. achievement. What did that feel like? The weirdest experience. Of that was it, is it here in this club that we're sat in now? Yeah, against Brandon. Against Brandon? Yeah. Were you anywhere? Were you anywhere near that? I mean, I, I guess back then you were probably definitely knocking centuries quite often. No, you weren't. No, it, it, Brandon will still say I, I was the weirdest player ever at that age. <laughs> I think I made four centuries, and then my fifth century was the maximum. But four centuries. The four centuries I made were like hundred dead on. I think. Yeah. I think my highest break before the one four seven was hundred and four. Wow. And the closest I'd ever got to a 147 before that was 72. <laughs> yeah. So let's just take you back to that then. So you're in the club with Brandon. Yeah. You're playing in best or whatever it is or whatever you're playing. Yeah. You're on this break. For those people that listen to the podcast that don't know much about snooker, a 147 is when you put red, black consecutively and then you put all the colours and it's a maximum break you can get. Yeah. Well, technically it's not, but we won't go down to that complicated <laughs> bit. But that is a maximum break you can make. So what point, uh, talk, talk, talk me through it, like what, what's so, going through your head? It's a funny story. Two weeks before, me and Brandon had an argument. Right. Because I was a right stubborn little bugger. Right. And I would, I would just argue with him for the sake of arguing because okay. I found it fun. Yeah. Because he, he was to quite, wind him up. He, he wasn't a timid lad, but he didn't like that kind of thing. So yeah. I would just yeah, yeah. wind him up. Right. So we were, all, we were in a car. Was that in a way to try and win, though, or was it just in general? Just in general. Just in general. I just liked annoying him. Yeah. <laughs> and we were in the car, and we were having this argument, and he was 16 when he made his first. So we were on that kind of topic. And I, this was just two weeks before my birthday, and I remember saying to him, I'll make one when I'm 15 just to beat you. And in my head, I thought, you've got no chance of that. I don't know why you've said that. You look yeah. an idiot now kind of thing. So he laughed in my face. So he rattled me even more. And I thought, oh man, I'm going to have him. I, I wanted it. We were that angry at each other. So fast forward two or three weeks. He's beating me like, I think it was like 8 0 or 8 1 or something. Potted long red, blah, blah, blah. And I've got to about 72. I didn't know I was on one. So I'm potting, potting. And then I potted a red. I was on 88. I potted a red. And I started laughing. 
Because <laughs> at that point, I knew I was on one. I'd never been this close. Is that the one time you knew you were? Did you, did you not even cross your mind no, before no. that red? So then I've looked at the table and thought, oh my God, there's not many reds left on here. I think I've had all black. So I just lit, I, I promise you now, I burst out laughing. <laughs> I had to stop for a minute because I was laughing. And Brandon looked at me and went, what are you doing? I went, I'm on a maximum. And he went, yeah. I went, all right, okay. And then just carried on as if nothing happened. Didn't take a break or even just carried no, on? No, I, I burst out laughing for a minute because yeah. something happened in me that thought, wow, oh my God, you're on one. Yeah. Carried on potting, potting. And I potted the Yabby and I looked up at Brand, winked at him and went, <laughs> and went I took your record now, aren't I? And he hated it. And then potted the colours and I just remembered, well, I started crying, mm. rung me dad. I rung my dad and said, I was like, oh my God, dad, 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 guess what? And he was at the petrol station, I remember, and he goes, uh, he goes, what's up, son? I said, I've just made a 147. And I can't use the words that he said. Um, and I went, no, I'm being serious, I did. And he just dropped the phone on the floor and come yeah. up. And then that was, that was it then, yeah. He was, um, did your dad always think, do you think from, say, the age of like 14, 15, do you think he thought you could be a pro? He thought I could be a very good player. Yeah. And that it's still at that age it was the learning and getting better. Yeah. Even though I did make a couple of tons and that maximum, you just don't know at that age kind of yeah. thing. You have to kind of prove it yourself in tournaments and then yeah. situations. But I he knew that I was going to be a good player. Yeah. How good we didn't know. Was it a turning point of one four seven for you and him, maybe with belief? Yeah, yeah. massively. So soon as I made that 147, it was like, I've seen professionals do this. Mm. I'm 15 and done this. What <laughs> does this mean something? Yeah. So every time I come in the club now, it was like, not in a cocky way, it was, um, I'm the 147 man. So what, what happened after that in the club then, in like tournaments? Did people start knowing that you started getting these 147s yeah. at 15? Yeah, it was, it was, it was over Twitter. Wow. It was all over Facebook and stuff and it, because now you see, you know, some kids making this, this, yeah, this break yeah. and this yeah, break yeah. and that, you think, oh, well done kind of thing. But even though it was only, you know, seven years ago, it's not a long time. Yeah. But even back then, for a 15-year-old to make a 147 oh, yeah. against someone like Brandon, it, it was massive. So you, the next time that we went Leeds, everyone was like, oh, my God, well done, well done. Mm. And then people start talking to you then. Yeah. And then it is kind of at that point when I started playing in these tournaments, it was as if I had something to prove. Yeah. Like yeah. Jensen's playing out of 147. Yeah. And then I had my first ton in the tournament. Yeah. And then it started clicking and it was yeah. like, okay, it's coming together now. And I am going to be good at this game. Yeah. It's crazy. I mean, you know, as I said I, before, I'm nowhere near your level and I never will be. But when you say about laughing, it's quite funny. Um, a good friend of mine, years ago that I used to first start playing snooker with was a lot better than me. He was one of them people that, like you said before, you were a good swimmer, a good footballer, a good snooker player. Anything he did, he was phenomenal. Mm. And I never cared at a young age how good I was at stuff. Like you, just used to play it to enjoy it. But then he rubbed off on me, the competitive side, and that's what now makes me like life or death in winning. I'd have to win, yeah. like, you know, no matter what it is. And I'll never forget a time... I think my highest break at the time was about 28, 29. And I got the last red to get 27. And I remember looking at him, like you said, you winked at Brandon before. 
But when I was when I was down on my shot on the black, I was thinking, this is to beat my highest break. I missed it. Because <laughs> I, I thought at the time, I thought, I could do it. And, and you do. And it is almost like a little bit of nervousness inside you. You don't know where that laughter comes from. It's not because it's funny. It's far from funny. Mm. But it's just a little bit of nervousness, yeah, isn't yeah. it? That just, you think, okay. And then like you say, you can get yourself settled down and yeah. go back again. So, yeah, following on from that, when did you start to sort of go into... Well, I guess like the professional route. What what was what was the professional route like? Um, it was tough because I think the junior game started to die out as I was coming through. So there wasn't as many juniors when I started winning. There wasn't as many juniors that could compete. There was there, were, there was a couple. Um, Hamem Hussein, absolutely amazing player, and there was there, there was a couple others. But there, there wasn't, there wasn't really anyone that stood out. Right. So it was probably you two on there, and that was. Yeah, it was yeah. like there, there was us two. There was a couple of us that on the day would beat us. Yeah. But there, there wasn't like 10, 12 players that were consistently doing yeah. it week in, week out, tournament after tournament. Yeah. So that's when I started. Like, I kind of concentrated on the men's game because the men's game, obviously, Brandon had gone up. And that's what you would have been. Yeah. yeah. And it was, you know, your Joe O'Connors, Ashley Cartes, people who are on the tour now, Louis Heathcote. Yeah. And then that's when I thought, right, I need to be like them now. Yeah. So yeah. I've done the junior bit. I've done all that, won all that. Yeah. And you move on to the men's. And as soon as I started playing in the men's, it was it was the year Joe O'Connor first got on and he won like five or six events out of the English amateur events. Yeah. And you look at him and think, right, okay, now I need to be that good. Mm. And then it's like back to square one yeah. because I never thought I could be that good even though I've won tournaments. Yeah. This is a men's game. Different level, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It is. Different level. It's, you've gone from a big fish in a small pond to a small fish in a big pond now. Yeah, this yeah. is like yeah. men that want do your 4-0 no matter yeah. what, how old you are. Also as well, it's not just playing for the fun and love and winning and no, competing no. with Brandon to say who can have the first 147 before what age. This is now men that we watch on TV. Yeah. It's the livelihood. Yeah. It's the job. Yeah, so it, and then you had a couple Peter Devlin, you had them kind of people that had been invited to one or two tournaments because they'd done so well, and you see them like getting to a semi final, not winning the tournament. I'm like, I've got to be that good, and they're not even winning this tournament. Yeah. So how can I be better than them? Mm. So to get to the the pro route, it was concentrate on the men's and just get as good as I could. Yeah. And then it did start coming together and when I was about 19 turning 20 in the back of my mind it was like right okay it's time now yeah we you need, just knew we, yeah we kind of need focus on yeah. getting on that tour because I knew I was good enough parts of my game I could still improve on but same with everybody but in the back of my mind it was okay right we're, we're good enough now mm. we, we're good enough to, to get on this tour and what, so you played tournaments when you were younger, like a junior. What what did you used to do for practice when you were getting to the age of 19, 20? What were you doing then? Were you going across the country and playing, like you said, Joe O'Connor and stuff? Were you going and playing these guys? And- yeah, yeah. It was just, I, I was just playing as many different people as I could, better or worse than me. Just playing different people, different tables, different environments. Did you play for money with them or not? A couple of, not much. A yeah. couple of times you played. Yeah. Like. If I'd stay there all day, we'd do like three best of nines and just have a ten of each set. Yeah, so yeah. someone was going 
I think it always matters more when there's money on it or something. Yeah, it just felt more as if we were in a match, match situation. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, the, when I left school, going back to when I left school, yeah. playing full-time, the, the kind of practice of it all did change. Yeah. It was like, I'm here for a reason now. Yeah. Get your head down. Mm. And I'll, I'll be the first one to admit that I didn't. Right. There, were, there was, you know, I'd go weeks and weeks where I just didn't. I was here for you know, six, seven hours, but I'd do two hours on the table. Chatting to the people yeah. on your phone, probably yeah. on Facebook and Twitter yeah. or whatever else. And then, yeah. like, leading up to the men's, like, a men's tournament kind of thing, I would do five days before a proper, proper hard work, turn up, win a match, and then lose, and it's like, well, why did I lose? Mm. But now looking back, it's clear as daylight as to why I did. Yeah. Because, because of that. And Did think, you think that you'd sort of almost gone through the younger years and thought, I've done it now, look at me, I've done that, I've had a 147, yeah. I've beaten every Tom, Dick and Harry, I've, I've, I've beaten Brandon who we used to get beat 20 nil by, I've made it. Did you think you'd almost had that feeling? And yeah, hadn't yeah. Been, I, I'd almost describe it for me when I played a lower league standard as I think I get the best out of myself when I'm the underdog, when I'm more humble. Mm. You know, I don't think I do when I expect things, when I think, oh, I am good, I can do that, I can, I can beat that guy. You know, when I think to myself, he's better than me, I need to really have my head on here. I've got to be 100% focused. Yeah, it was, because I've gone from juniors to the men's, it was like I've gone from winning to losing, but I still had that mindset of, I'm winning. Mm-hmm. I'm going to absolutely pile through everyone here. And I yeah. couldn't, because yeah. I wasn't good enough. You weren't putting preparation in, were you? No. Yeah. Um, and I kind of did that until I was, until I was about 18, 19. But because I had that thought of, Obviously, I did improve, but I had the thought of turning pro in there. That's when it was like, you really need to sort yourself out now. You mm. need to come in. You need to do these practices. You need to put your head down. As boring as it is, as low as you feel on confidence, it doesn't matter. Just put the work in. And Would, would your dad know at that age that you were coming here, you were practising, did he know that you weren't taking it as serious as maybe someone who's going to turn professional has hoped to turn professional would? Did he know? Yeah, I think I think with my daddy, at that point he knew I had the game to do well, turn pro. Um, he knew I was confident enough. You know, I've never struggled in the confidence department, but he would be the first person to know straight away if I put hours in or not. Because he could tell in matches what you would what yeah, you would he, turn he out. Could tell, you, you had the odd match where you have put work in yeah. and you just haven't played well. Yeah. But you you yeah. can tell the difference between someone who hasn't prepared properly and someone that is just having a bad day. Yeah. And that went on for a couple couple of years and I just thought, oh, I can cruise by, I'm you know, I'm getting told by this person, this, I'm going to turn pro. Yeah. And just wasn't getting the results and that's when it did hit me that you not wasted two years of your life. It was yeah. it was a good lesson yeah, 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 to yeah. look back on. Yeah. But it was a, a good portion of my snooker career. Yeah. Where what if I did put the hard work in in them two years, two or three years, would mm. I have turned pro two or three years younger than I am now? Yeah. Or would I have been a better player for when I've turned pro now? I think it's hard to say, isn't it? Because you can't you can't go back in time, unfortunately, and no, no. do that. And, and do things properly and prepare properly and then say, oh, yeah, that would have been this way. I think in life, you know, like with me with this podcast, for years I wanted to do this, mm. honestly, years. Even before podcasts came out, I've always had a passion for talking to people. But yeah. in my own head, 
I always think about, oh, I could do it. Oh, but maybe people won't listen to it. Maybe it won't be good. Yeah. And you almost sort yourself out of it. I guess for you, though, it wasn't a case of that. It was a case of you probably believed the hype because people were hyping you up. You were yeah. going to tournaments. This is Genesis. He's knocked in a 147. He wins competitions. Mm. Suddenly, I guess you, at that age, if you were to go back, you'd probably think, oh, I'm going to naturally make it. I'm going to be a pro. I can't not be. Mm. But really, that is where the hard work would start. Yeah. Because for those people that don't know, you can't pay to be a pro like you used to do 20, 30 years ago. You have to go through a brutal experience, which we'll get onto in a bit, which is called Q School, mm. where you could have 130, 200 other people that are paying an entrance fee of like £1,000, and you have three chances to go through in three separate competitions. Yeah. And it is absolutely cutthroat. Mm. And I think, yeah, I'm always a believer in life that you have to learn things. And no matter how long things take you to learn, if it was two years, four years, six years, you've learned it. You yeah. know that now. Yeah, yeah. You know, so as much as you can say you wasted it, I think you, sometimes in life, our parents have done it for years where they say, don't do that because this will happen. I do it with my little girl all the time. Mm. And you'll get there when your little, your little boy's a bit older. Mm. You know, you'll, don't do that because if you touch a fire, you'll burn your hand. Yeah. You know, but kids don't listen to that. No. I think you have to go through your own experiences, positive or negative, to think that was right but this was wrong and I shouldn't have done that and therefore I'm not going to do it again. Yeah, exactly. So for you now on the tour, you'll know I have to knuckle down. This yeah. this is it. Yeah, so from, from that point, it, it was looking at other players, it, it was what are they doing different to me and it all did boil down to they're just working harder. Putting more time. They're, they're not better than me. Yeah. The, the, the results are showing they are, but I know they're not. Mm. they're just putting the work in and what happened then from that so when you realised that and then you started knuckling down what, what yeah, then happened then I just got me head down I kind of took myself away from certain people mm. that would not bring me down but not want me to yeah, kind of progress yeah, 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 yeah. and then I started noticing the change in my game yeah. and I think mentally physically in every possible way I improved. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, I'm I'm glad I went through them few years yeah. of that. But if I could go back and change this, I would. Yeah. Just because it, who knows where I'd be now? Yeah. I could be a tournament winner now on the but, tour. But you could also have gone through there and not made it to where you've got now because maybe yeah. for your own development mentally and growing up. Because I mean, to be fair, you're 22. And back then you were what nineteen twenty, very young. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I mean, I probably didn't start maturing until I was about thirty-five. To be fair, <laughs> I'm thirty-nine this year, but I think everyone goes through different journeys in life. Mm. You know, not one thing for one person is the same for the next one. Mm. So even if you told or heard that from somebody, you may not have changed it. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that because no. you still got to where you wanted to get to. Mm. It's just it went a different route. Yeah, and that's and I guess if I sat down here now with a hundred of the professionals on tour did each have a different story. Yeah. And some of them are probably similar to yours. Mm. You know, we see kids all the time in the club that I play, I'll give a shout out to it, Elite in Preston. There's about five or six lads in there that are outrageously good at snooker. You know, varying from eight, nine years old to 16. Yeah. In fact, there's a lad going into Q school this year. Um, and I watched him for the first time about a month ago, knocking a 90 plus break. Mm. And the look in his eyes as he was doing it, you could just tell like he was on it. Yeah. You know, and he goes in the club, however many days a week to practice, and he takes it really seriously. But yeah. 
I think for everyone and, you know, each person, it's all different. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. No, no. I think as well, um, I was very, growing into that age, I think it was about 17, 18, I mentally struggled with the sense of, I kind of contradicted myself every day. Right. Because I knew I was good enough to turn pro. Yeah. But half of me was like, you're never going to turn pro. Yeah. So we, I'd come in and I'd think, I'd get told by someone, oh, you're a fantastic player, you're this, you're that. And I'd, I'd believe it. But half of me was like, you're not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it got to that point where I just didn't believe I was good. Yeah. So even though I fancied winning tournaments, in the back of my head there was always something that was, you're not good enough. Yeah, yeah. I think we all have that. Yeah, and I wouldn't go as far to say I wanted to quit because I didn't think I was good enough. Yeah. But I think that did stop me in certain senses where, Mm. because I I even have it now on the tour or two school places like that where I think, okay, I'm on the tour now and there is still parts of me in the back of my head that think you're not good enough, even though I know I am. It's like a confusing thing. Yeah. I, I think most people probably do get that. Yeah, but it, in a sport like snooker, it, it, it well, it can cost you your, your tour card. It can cost you your job. I think a difficult thing with snooker as well as a as a person on the outside looking inside. If I look at snooker and I say I turn on Eurosport or I turn on ITV or I turn on BBC, I'm only watching a small portion, a very very small portion, say ten percent of this snooker players day, life, yeah. whatever, because you don't see the hours that you put into practice. No. You don't see the days, months of the year when people are away from the families, mm. you know? And, and I think that's part of the snooker that you don't see and maybe you don't appreciate. No. For the average person like me who plays a very basic amateur game in a, in a league, because like you did and still probably do, you love the game, mm-hmm. I do. I put a day's practice in a week of maybe six, seven hours, and then I play my match mm-hmm. and have that social aspect. When you're going to a tournament, they probably, well, there may be a little bit of social aspect. Like you might speak to the stage guy, you might speak to the referee, you might yeah. speak to the tournament directors. I don't know how it works when I've been there, but yeah. I imagine you'd have some form of social. But when that call comes and you've got to go out and you're playing a match, there's no social aspect there, is there? No. The next section is Q School. So for those people that don't know what Q School is, as I mentioned before, it's a way of getting the pro tour. Could you explain to the people who don't know what Q School is, what it is? Yeah, it's um, it's a tournament that run once a year. Uh, you pay £1,000 and it's like three separate tournaments, but they run straight after each other. Um, and the four semi-finalists from each event turn pro basically um and that's about it that's as brutal as it is yeah so how many people on average would you say would enter q school every year uh on average i'd say probably about 220 yeah to around that mark 200 mark yeah every year and just to point out to people at home listening who may not know this these aren't just people that are like you would have been there like 2021 or whatever when you entered it 
these sometimes are professionals that fall off the tour because every year, how many people on the tour every year? There's 128. Yeah, and there's only a certain amount of people that can keep the tour card, yeah. isn't there? Yeah. So the people that fall off the tour, you could come up against. So this isn't just players that are young, aspiring. No, no. You, you get a wide range. You get, you know, you're, you're younger. I think everyone who enters Q school, you could count on only one hand people that have done it as like a bucket list kind of thing. I'd say roughly 190 players that are in there are there two-term pro. So yeah. you've got, on average, every every two school, you'll have about 16 players that have just dropped off the tour. Yeah. You'll have 40, 50 players that have been professional before that are just giving it a go again. You'll have load, a handful of amazing amateurs from around the world. And then you've got the people like myself that are younger, trying to get on who are good enough to so there's just a well it's brutal and before am i right in saying that it used to be in different parts of the countries before and it's now held in sheffield permanently is that right or is it i'm not sure now well it changes every year i did i when i got on it was in sheffield right the year before was it was sheffield again because it was covid covid so so you went so your journey in Q school was the one after COVID. So was that like 2021, would it have been? It was last year, so 22. 22, right, yeah. okay, yeah, 22. Uh, yeah, the year before that was COVID. I think the year before that... Wouldn't have had one, would they, I don't think? Would they? Yeah, I think they did. So oh, that right, might okay. have been Barnsley. Right. And then it was Leicester. So they do change it every yeah. now and then. Yeah. So what... So explain us basically what happened so you pay for this and mm-hmm. um, i presume obviously sponsors and stuff that you have that would then pay for that for you well uh, when i got on last year it was just my dad right okay me dad put my dad's business sponsors me but we put the money together for right it, okay yeah. um so you went then, to this on the form or whatever online and then yeah just then entered online you get the draw through about two weeks before you play, through before you play, turn up and play. Yeah. Yeah. So when you have the draw mentally, are you looking at the draw or you're not looking at the draw? No. Yeah. That's always the I, best way to be. Yeah, I did I did used to. I look at who I've got the first round, what time I play. That's all I look at. I won't yeah. look at who I've got next. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I won't because there's three draws that you get. I just look at the first one. Right? Yeah. Who have I got the first? What time, what day. What time, what day. Yeah. Right, let's, let's boot practice. There we go. What did you do in terms of, like, did you stay over there? Because you're not that far from Sheffield and Stoke, really, are you? Did you travel every day and back? Or? Yeah, we. there was one day that we stayed over, and that was <clears throat> the last event. Uh, I won the last 16 match, and it was about 10 o'clock at night. Me and my dad were running around trying to find a hotel, hotel. <laughs> luckily there was a one of them easy hotels across the road and they yeah. had two rooms left right. one for me and one for dad um and that was obviously to play the quarterfinal match the next right. morning yeah but no we um it's about an hour and a half for us yeah so it, it's like that time in between where if i play at 10 in the morning which i did a couple of times yeah it's that awkward hour and a half where do you get up at half past seven mm. and travel or do you stay in a hotel the night before? Yeah. So we just thought we'll just travel. 
how does it work in Q school with practice? So, so let's say, for example, you played your first game on the, I don't know, Monday morning at 10 o'clock. You're then setting off from Stoke, half, seven, eight, whatever it may be. Do you do all your practice the night before, the day before? Is that how it'd work? Yeah, yeah. So a couple of times at Q school, they've had practice tables and a couple of times they haven't. So the, last year when I got on, they didn't have practice tables. Yeah. Um, so Which it is was, fair, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, it is fair. I prefer it that way. Um, so, yeah, we just did all the practice the day before and woke up as if it was another day and on your way to Sheffield and then see yeah. what happens. So describe to me what the first, and for people listening, what the first feelings, thoughts you had of that very first journey, if you can remember it, going up there. Yeah, the first event I was playing, um, it was a good friend of mine, Caden. Um, and it was, <clears throat> sorry, it was, it was a different feeling to the Q schools I've done before, but in a good way, because the person I practiced with here, Liam, he was obviously on the tour. We'd done three months proper preparation leading up to it because he had the world championships and then a few weeks later I had Q school. Mm-hmm. And I think it was the only time Liam could properly tell that I was ready. I was ready for So this. he knew? He knew I was ready for this. And tour. Liam's been a professional now for quite a few years, hasn't he? Yeah. yeah. So we... We put everything for the three months leading up to it. He yeah. helped me so, so much Yeah. Every in every department, mentally, shots to play, how to play, everything. Mm. And it, it was the best three months of my life, snooker-wise. Yeah. Yeah. Because after a week of him saying, you're ready, yeah. I could, my game just went on a different level. And you then believed that as well. And everything in my whole heart, my mind was like, I am ready. Mm. So going into that first match, like a couple of years that I've done before, I thought, oh, I've done practice, but what if this, what if that? Whereas I went in and I thought, just a match. Yeah. And I just went out. I played amazing in that first match. Yeah. Uh, it didn't feel like a win because I felt like I knew I was going to win, if you get what I mean. Because you prepared so well. Yeah, it, yeah. Did, it didn't feel like I'd won a match. It just felt like I'd gone and had a practice. Yeah. Because I felt that comfortable and I felt that in that mindset where I couldn't lose. Yeah. It was just like a practice game. Practicing, though, here with Liam, you are so lucky because if you look at some people who've maybe not made it to be professionals before, snooker is a very lonely place and i know that from playing myself but when you do six seven hours solo practice mm. that's on you for everything yeah. but you've had someone there who's been to the highest point of snooker which i don't think can ever be argued with which is the crucible to make it to the crucible if you're not in the top 16 or the top no top 16 isn't it yeah, yeah. If you're not in the top 16 you have to go through i think three qualifiers for that which are best of 19s yeah you know, that's brutal. So you've got a guy there who you're lucky enough to share the same club with, to share the same room with, and he's then giving you this help and support. How could you not be prepared? You know, you're right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and Liam is the the type of person where he won't give you anything unless he knows that you're giving it everything. So yeah. for Liam to come to me one day, we sat down for a good few hours, 
went through everything. And for him to do that when he had the World Championships leading up to want to help me. Yeah. And it, it helped him as well because it brought my game on that much. That mm. When we were playing, we were, we were having... You were giving him a good game. We are having three best of 11s a day and it, they were yeah. deciders near enough every yeah. time. So you were pushing him as much as yes. he was pushing and helping you. He went into the world and he won every game comfortably going into the to get to the crucible. Yeah. So we, I think we both helped each other a lot, but obviously for myself, I concentrated on myself more mm-hmm. because of yeah, few scores. So yeah. It was like after that first game, and then my second game in the first event was against Daniel Wells, who's yeah. obviously a very yeah. established pro. Yeah, from Wales. Yeah, yeah. Um, he just dropped off, so he's got that confidence of being on the tour. Mm. He kind of has got that mindset of just get through it again. He knows how to get over the line. Yeah, yeah. So went in that game, blitzed through him, and wow. then it's like, you know, <laughs> if I'm beating someone who's one of the favourites to get through it, yeah, I'm comfortable. Didn't feel any kind of nerves. It was like, right, okay. Next game, I played Fergal O'Brien from Ireland. Yeah, yeah, another. Well, he just retired, hasn't he, about a year ago or something? I think he's only just recently retired as a coach, you know, I think, doesn't he? I'm not too sure. Are you still on the tour now? Well, I okay. think he is dabbling more into the coaching side of things. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he was. It was a very hard fought game. I think we were out there for about three hours. He, he beat me 4 0, but it could have been 4 0 my way. Very safety. Um, He's got a lot of experience. So I could he? take a lot from that match. I didn't get blitz 4 0 where he's had four centuries. Yeah. So I took a lot from that game. And I didn't come back disheartened. I didn't, nothing like that. It, it, whereas before I would have. Mm-hmm. So even that kind mm-hmm. of mindset. You'd notice that shift, yeah. Even yeah. within six months. Wow. So then the second. How, how, sorry, how yeah. long in between the end of that one to the beginning of the next tournament is that? Three days, four days. So, so I, what do you do for three or four days? Do you come back to back Stoke? Here. Yeah, exact same thing. Back to the table. Yeah, confident. Yeah, yeah. So then, uh, yeah, I had about four days practice, and then I went into the next game of the second event, the first one against the Chinese player, and it was as if I hadn't practiced for a year. Couldn't pot a ball. Every safety shot I did went completely wrong. Wow. My head started going, and it was as if. When I was sitting in my chair and all these things were going wrong when I was 3-0 down, it was like, well, four days ago, mm. I played Fergal O'Brien, who was a very, very top player. Yeah. And I was competing with him. And now I'm playing someone, no offence to the to the Chinese lad, I haven't heard of. Yeah. He wasn't better than me. Yeah. But I couldn't pot a ball. What's happened in them four days? So then I've lost that. I've come back here. And that's when I started to feel disheartened and mm. what's gone wrong, what's how has it changed in that short amount of time. What do you think what do you think it was? What do you think it could have been? I think in that looking back now in the difference between the three matches I've played before and that one, I think I expected to play well. Right. Because you played well in the first event. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. I kind of expected to play well and because I didn't, mm-hmm. it was not mentally draining, but it was like, okay, what can I change? So I did something different. That didn't work. And then by that time, I'm 3-0 down. Yeah, you're, too you're late, out the tournament. Yeah, too going late. back to yeah. Stoke. Yeah. So come back and woke up the next morning, got a phone call off Liam. He says, what happened? So I told him. 
So he rang you. He rang okay. me. He says what happened. Told him everything that went on, and he he gave me a shouting at basically. Yeah. And he says, "Why have you done that? Why have you done this? Why did you do that? Why did you think that?" And I thought well, that, that's just how I felt. Mm. He says, "But remember what you did the first time you went out and played." Yeah. So then I had five days practice, just remembering everything we'd gone through. Gone into the third event, exactly the same as the first. Yeah. Didn't feel like missing. Yeah. I didn't feel any sort of pressure. Played um, a lad called Ross Bowman, who's a good friend of mine. He's yeah. from Ireland. Yeah, I've heard of him. And he was number one in the Q School rankings wow. going into the third event. He'd got to the quarterfinals of first and the last 16 of the second. Wow. So I knew it was a tough game. Mm. I think I beat him 4 2. Yeah. Um, played amazing. Fantastic. Come home. Same thing again the next day. Exact same result. I played a lad called Phil O'Kane. Beat him 4-3. It was the same again. No pressure, nothing. And then it was, a right, okay, not getting to the back end, but we're in the middle of a tournament now. I'm not playing close to my best, but as we gradually get on, you get more confidence and everything. Yeah. Um, and then I beat another player, and then it's the last 32. And then in the back of your mind, you're thinking, okay, last 32, you're starting to play well. You look at the list of names who... In there, and you think, God, I'm you got a chance. I've got a good chance here. Yeah. I'm, I'm competing with them, I'm competing with them. Yeah, I think it's worth mentioning at this stage as well is that when the Q school uh, events are drawn, if, say, for instance, you're playing some pros on tournament one and then they're in tournament two and three, their games, when they make it through, say, in tournament one, they get wiped out, don't they? And yeah. then that person then gets a walkover. Yeah. So not that it's easy Q school at all, I'm not saying it is, but it gets easier because you'd think that the better ones get sieved out in event one, event two, and then event yeah. three. There probably is still some left, but it's probably becomes a little bit maybe easier. Yeah. It gets I wouldn't say easier, I'd say you've had two tournaments to get yourself right. And it's as if the third one everyone's mindset is, right, it's the last event, I need to do well. Mm. So they put pressure on themselves. Yeah. So for me... It's about last chance to learn, isn't it, almost? Yeah, so for what me and Liam went through, it was like, I knew I was playing well enough to get on. I had the mindset to, that I was going to get on, yeah. but I never put the pressure on myself to think, okay, I need to do it in this event. I just plodded on as if... So you were the same attitude as you were in the first event? Yeah. The same one that you entered the third event with? Yeah, yeah so... It, and then I won my last 32 match and <clears throat> me and my dad didn't have a hotel at this point. So we played the last 32 at 10 in the morning and then there was more last 32s at like 1 o'clock and then 4 o'clock and then the last 16 at 7. So we had all day. Oh, so they're, they're in the same day? Yeah, the last, the last one, last 16 right, okay. in the same day. Right. So we had all day. So we were debating, do we go home, have a couple hours practice, come back and then we thought traffic. Yeah. So we, we ruled that out. And then it was as of anywhere practice and, and there's two academies in Sheffield. Yeah. And it was like, but you need to boot to get play in them. Yeah. So yeah. we ruled that out. So it was like, okay, we've got nowhere practice. And there's no practice tables at the, the uh, event, was it? No. So. so we we kind of had to work our day around keeping my mind focused. So we went on a walk. We didn't talk about snooker. I said to my dad, Leave it. I said, We leave the snooker at the at the venue. While we're having a walk around, go for some food. We mm -hmm. don't talk about snooker. Leave snooker there. Yeah. 
Yeah. So we just went about today, had some dinner. We went in his um, in his van. I had a little sleep in the back of the van, and I would just yeah. keep myself going. Yeah. yeah. And then went in the last sixteen match, and I hadn't been this far before. Yeah. So it's a bit unknown territory now. Yeah. So it it, it was kind of stick to what we've been doing as yeah. as much as we could. And before the match, I kind of remember sitting in the players' lounge, waiting to go down, thinking, thinking to myself, oh, what if I do go out and this happens? And I start mm, panicking. Mm. So then them thoughts start coming in. Yeah. And I went out, and it was as if it wasn't the last 16. It was as if I was practicing with Liam. Yeah. And at that, at that moment, I saw my opponent and thought, he's struggling with the pressure. Mm. And I knew I was going to win that. Yeah. I knew I was going to win that match. Um, played amazing, won that match quite comfortably. Now we're in the quarterfinals, and I didn't real—I realised I was in the quarters, but mentally I was just in another tournament. It's just the next round. It's just so, another opponent. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't—it didn't comprehend in my body that I was one match away from turning pro. The dream kind of thing. Yeah. So we went and got hotel. We went out for a little bit of food, gone sleep. Woke up in the morning. And felt amazing, no problems. Gone to the venue, and then it hit me. <laughs> this is it. Okay, this is it. Because you've gone from a, you've gone from walking in the players' lounge and there being 20, 30 players. Yeah. To now there's eight players, <laughs> and you look around and you've got. Oh my god! You've got yeah. people like James Cale. Yeah. Who's beat Ronnie on tally? Yeah. And at the World Championships a few years yeah, ago, yeah, he's been a, very well. a very good professional. Yeah. You've got people like John Astley who's been on the tour for yeah. multiple years, and I'm thinking, I'm here with them. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, I didn't cower away from it. I sat in the corner on my own. Did you feel you belonged there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And because yeah. I think because I felt I belonged there, yeah, was the reason. Yeah, I won. Relaxed. And I'm... we we went out and we went down to play. I played a lad called um, Hayden Penny. Mm. Amazing player. Won matches on tour this year, even though he's not professional. He's been invited. Yeah. And the first frame was a bit twitchy. I think we both felt it a bit. Yeah, yeah, understandably. And I've and I've looked at him when we're sitting, and he's got his head in his hands. Oh. And instantly, then. Yeah. I remember looking up at my dad. There was loads of people watching. I looked up at my dad, and the first thing in my mind was, "You're a professional now." Even though I'd only won one frame, I'd looked at him and thought, if I can just yeah. keep myself together yeah. here, even though I'd never been there before, yeah. if I can just keep my composure here, I've, I've done it. Yeah, yeah. And it was, I went 3-1 up. I was about, and I'll never forget this, 3-1 up. I was 20, 23 ahead with the colours on. Yeah. Uh, yellow to black. And I've got this really difficult yellow. And in my head, I thought, okay, you're feeling good, you're feeling good. And then something clicked in my head and just went, just go for it. Mm. Just go for it. No pressure, nothing. Potted this amazing long yellow, landed perfect on the green. And then they hit me, tears streaming down my face. I said to the ref, can you clean the cue ball, please? And I sat in my chair, tears strolling down my face with mm. like happiness because I've, done, I've yeah. done it. Yeah. And then potted green, potted brown, potted blue. And you see other people, I've seen loads of people who have just turned pro and yeah. give it the fist pump yeah. and look up and you're dead yeah. happy. I don't know what to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I sh- he shut my hand, I shut the ref's hand, put my cue away, I couldn't wait to get out. I just, I just, I didn't show any emotion, just walked out. 
and I stood at stood at the front desk. <laughs> and I remember um, a lad called Mark Williams, not the snooker player. He works behind the. Is scenes he a security guy? Yeah, the security guy. Yeah, I don't know him. I've seen him at a couple of events before. I've been to. Yeah. Yeah, and I was standing there, and he, he come running over because I got on really well with him. Yeah. Gave me a hug, and he says, "Oh my God, well done!" I just went, "Oh, thank you." And he looked at me up and down. He went, <laughs> "You're right." I went, "Yeah, I'm fine." Says you do know you just turned professional, don't you? And I just looked up at him and went, uh, 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 "Yeah." Speechless. And then crumbled. Yeah, yeah. Dropped my cue. I, I couldn't hold my cue. Couldn't yeah. hold my phone. Wow. Just, just crumbled. My dad come out, run over to me, giving me a massive old crying yeah. his eyes out. Yeah. And then it was, it. I, I felt proud of myself because I knew I'd put the hard work in. Mm. And I knew if I didn't put that hard work in that we did, I would be nowhere near yeah. that final round. Yeah. So we, it was the weirdest, most enjoyable experience of yeah. being a player. That yeah. moment you turn pro. Mm-hmm. And you know you've got two years of fighting it with the big boys. and Because you get a two-year tour card, don't you, when yeah. you turn professional? So um, we, everything going through my head, I remember the first thought of, I was thinking after I'd done the first interview was, you know, I've watched Judd Trump play since the very first time I picked up a cue. Mm. He was the person I was watching and pausing. Oh, was it? To okay. Learn the shots. Right. And it's like, yeah, I'm the same as him. Yeah. He, he's num- he was yeah, number yeah. one in the world. Yeah, yeah. I've got the same accolade as I'm him. I'm a pro now. Yeah. I'm the same as him. In life. I could play him. Professional, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it, it was for about two or three weeks, it just didn't settle in mm. that I'd, I'd done it. Because you've got a gap, haven't you? Because when you play the World Championships in the April to the May, yeah. Q School then is normally, what, June? Is it beginning of June? End of May, beginning of June. And then you have, when does your season start? The pros, is it September or August? No, very start of July. Oh, is it? Oh, right, July, wow. Yeah. Okay. We brought it forward a bit. Now. It did right. used to be August time. Yeah. Yeah, so it was... So you've not got long, really, have you, from getting over the fact that mm. you're realising you're a pro mm. to now you're going to have to prepare to then start playing yeah, so, in a month or two yeah so we we'd gone back home and um me my girlfriend and a few of my mates went out for a few drinks or whatever and i woke up the next morning with the thing of oh my god i woke up a professional super player this is day one <laughs> yeah. i didn't know what to do with myself so i just come in the club yeah 10 till 5 right done the exact same thing that i did mm. and people kind of thought i was only gone in the club kind of thing i wanted mm. to come in obviously to show respect to everyone because yeah if, if it wasn't for the people at this club i wouldn't be here yeah obviously. for the support that they've had yeah here. but i'd come in give everyone hugs or whatever then thought oh, right okay let's go practice but do you know what i can see there and maybe you realize it i don't know if you do but i can see there though that the two years that you didn't practice you didn't take anything for granted as soon as you turned pro no, no. You'd gone straight no, no. to the table. Yeah. You didn't think, oh, I've made it. I mean, I can only imagine, and people listening can only imagine, what it's like to turn pro at something that mm. you've put so many years in for. Your dad's drove you around the country. You've had sponsorship and everything. You've gone through a couple of Q schools. You've now made it to be a pro. If this was ever the time that you were ever going to get complacent, it's now, and you weren't. You were straight into practice. Yeah, Yeah, it was... That did go through my mind, the fact of, you know, because turning pro is probably the easiest part of a professional. 
it's staying on the tour, which is the hardest part. Mm. So for me, obviously, if Liam wasn't here, I wouldn't be where I am now. Yeah. I look at Liam's career and think, right, Liam's doing this, doing this. That's what I've got to do. Yeah. So when Liam goes to a tournament, gets to a quarterfinal, loses, and he's back in the next day. Yeah. He's working on stuff to get better, to get yeah. to a semi-final. Yeah. So I come in the next day and Liam was here. We had a, we had a good talk about everything, obviously congratulating me. And then it was back to business. Yeah. It was back to, right, I need improve now yeah. to stay on the tour. Yeah. So he's almost like your your um, role model in a way, isn't he, really? Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, Because how old is Liam? Is Liam sort of 30, like... One or two. Okay. Yeah, so he's a good sort of nine, ten years older than you. Yeah. So, yeah, as a role model, you can't really have anyone better than that. And I mean, this year he was at the Crucible as well, yeah. you know. So when you have that kind of person, I guess it rubs off on you. Yeah. So you know, I have to take this seriously. I have to almost do what he's doing. So yeah. if he's in a day after losing a quarterfinal or last 64 or whatever, I'm in as well. I've got to do this. I've yeah. got to put the time in because if I want to get to where he's got to, I've got to do the same. Yeah, yeah, I've got to get to where he is, obviously, I've got to do the same and probably more. Yeah. So there's plenty of times where me and Liam have played the best of 19 all day, finished at half four, five o'clock. He's gone home and thought, I'm going to stick an extra hour in, just so I know I've done more than him. So I can, <laughs> so I can say so I can say I've done more than him. Yeah. So it, if it happens in the long run, yeah. I end up higher in the rankings just any, yeah, any situation yeah, yeah. like that yeah i can tell myself you know i did more yeah yeah liam liam's at the point now where he can do a certain amount of hours and you won't make him better right. or worse kind yeah. of thing he's doing the hours to keep his that he needs to do that he he's knows. good enough to, yeah, yeah. to be a top 32 top 24 player no yeah no doubt yeah. he just needs that one little breakthrough yeah whereas me it's, i need to get to that level now yeah so i have to stick an extra hour in yeah, yeah, yeah. over him mm. so i've put the hard work in that story reminds me of like a lot of footballers that i've ever heard talk about things yeah. where they're like oh yeah this footballer's in at eight in the morning we don't even get the chain until nine yeah and that guy's done an hour in the gym we go home, he does an hour at free kicks or whatever. Yeah. And sometimes it is that work ethic that only really comes from within you. And I wouldn't even say it's a work ethic, I'd say it's a drive. Yeah. It's that it's that ultra drive inside you that makes you think, right, I'm gonna put this extra hour in because that's gonna make the difference. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, phenomenal. So obviously you practice at the minute. Well, I don't know if you practice right now because obviously the off season for you. Mm. What 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 is it looking like now for you off season? What do you sort of do now? Um, obviously, we've just had little baby. Yeah. So I've had had a couple of weeks off from the end of the tournament, uh, yeah. end of the season. Sorry. Yeah. Just spend time with girlfriend, baby. Um, just because the first tournament back will be probably middle of July, so I've just started weaving my way back in, doing three or four hours a day now. Yeah. Um, and then when it's is that every day or is that just five days a week? Yeah. Do you treat it like a job or how does it? Yeah, well, we do pretty much six days a week, Right. me and Liam. Um, six days a week, we have Sunday off, Right. come back Monday, do the exact same thing. Um, when it's the off-season, up until amount, about a month before tournaments, we'll just do a couple hours a day, just keep yeah. our arm in, just so we know when we come back properly, we're not rusty and it takes us a week to get back into it. Yeah. Um, it's more not a chill time the off season but yeah. it, it is more of a 
keep yeah. your arm in. Keep your arm going, do yeah, stuff yeah. away from snooker that yeah. keeps you going, keeps yeah. you happy kind of thing. Yeah, plus as well, you're not really competing, so you're not really pushing for that absolute no. match sharpness right now no. that you would be if you were no, in the season. We, about a month before you, you start putting the hard work in, you'll notice after two weeks you start your game starts to peak a little bit. So then it's just kind of surrounding your game and doing the hours that will keep you at that peak. Right. So if I was to come in now and do 10 hours a day, yeah. what's the point of me peaking my game yeah, yeah. a month now, and a half before yeah. when I've got to do another month or half of practice mm. to keep that? same standard so. so I guess now then that will drive up and up and then you'll come here with Liam and you'll start doing so if you were mid-season and you were say I don't know January yeah. what would you be doing then still six days a week yeah and what sort of hours would you be putting into the practice um, we get here at 10 we'd probably leave 5, 6 o'clock yeah um, have an hour for lunch and yeah. then probably about three o'clock we have half an hour. So, but the rest of the hours we're on the table, yeah, doing some serious. How practice. how does like do you talk to each other as well, or you know what I'm trying to say is when you have a serious match coming up, like he had Sheffield, you had Q School. Yeah. Do you almost treat it? Because when you're with your opponent and you're playing these tournaments, you don't obviously sit there and have a chin wag while the referee is putting the ball back on the no. table. Do you treat it like that? Oh yeah, we hate you. Do we hate yeah. each other? <laughs> yeah, yeah do, we'll we'll say we'll come in. We'll say right. We'll do three best of elevens. Yeah. Um, we'll do best of eleven. We'll have dinner. Yeah. Have a chat. Whatever. Yeah. As soon as we come back down here, hate each other. Yeah. So I it literally does go to that straight away. He wants to bury me. I won't bury yeah. him. <laughs> and then as soon as we finish. I'll go to him, I'll say, oh, do you remember when I played this shot? Yeah, yeah. Say, yeah, what would you have done? Mm. And then we're best mates again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But while yeah. while we're here playing each other, yeah. or while we're both doing solo, yeah. it is... You have right. to almost create that atmosphere yeah. and environment yeah. that you would have at a tournament. Yeah. But it's very hard to do, I mean... And pe- people have come down when me and Liam are playing, and they, <laughs> they say, oh, it's dead awkward. <laughs> and they think, why? And they say, well, you both look like you won't kill each other. Yeah. But I, th- I say to him, I say, well, when we're out playing, mm. I'm not going to be happy and jolly playing Mark Selby on Tally, am I? No. I-, I want to destroy him. He wants to destroy me. So I love that side of it because, as I keep saying, I'm an amateur. I'm nowhere near a pro. But I take it very seriously. Mm. And I don't, I'm not a massive boxing fan. Don't get me wrong. I'm not huge or anything. But I do like my boxing. Mm. What I love with boxers is that they hate each other. They then knock 10 bells of you-know-what out of each other yeah. for like 12 rounds, and then the best mates hugging and kissing each other in the ring. Yeah. And I love that because when I used to work, um, when I worked, there was a lad who was an ex-professional snooker player, and his handicap was uh, minus 68. Mm. So you could only give that as a maximum, so I was only ever going to get a 68 start, even though I was on like plus 20. And he used to work in a different office from me. So he'd ring me up and talk about sort of the snooker or whatever on the Monday. We used to play on Tuesday nights. And I used to be like, what are you ringing me for? Because there was a high chance the next night I was playing him. Yeah. I don't want to know. I don't want to talk. They will look at you. No. After the game, yeah, we'll talk. <laughs> and I used to create this hostile thing. He's a few years older than me, but he always used to laugh about it. And I always used to just, and, and I can't do that because I always find that when you really get on with someone, it's kind of horrible to beat them. Going back to what you said before about Q School when you said about, you know, you saw his head in his hands 
you've still then got to do the job. Yeah. You've still then got to twist the knife yeah. and finish him off. Yeah. Which is brutal. Yeah, and that, that was that was one part of my game that I struggled with. Yeah. Was was putting the knife in yeah. and twisting yeah. it. Yeah. I would always feel sorry for you. Hayden is someone I respect. He's a great player. Yeah. I, I think he's good enough to be professional by far. Yeah. And he's been that close that many times that when I saw that yeah. before I would have thought, Oh, you know, he he deserves it kind of thing. He's been here quite a few times. Yeah. Whereas that one time, yeah. because of how Liam's talked, thinking of you, I kind of saw him on the floor and thought, I need to stamp on you. Yeah. This is it now. Yeah. I said, you can come back next year and do this and you yeah. probably might get on. Yeah. I said, this is my time now. And before, it wouldn't have been like that. It's interesting, isn't it? Mm. It's interesting. So, we're going to move on to the next part, which will be listener questions. Yep. So this part of the podcast, we're going to call listener questions. So, Jensen, let me just ask you some of the most randomest, weirdest questions that we've got from our listeners. So the first one is, what does it take to turn pro to Q School? Uh, Q School, you pay your £1,000. There's three events. Basically, you just have to get to the semi-finals of any three of them events. and there's more or less of just over 200 people each event. Yeah. Um, that's it, really. But it's brutal. Do you think that when you go to that event and you've got sort of 200 people, the ability isn't probably too far in between, is it? Of you know, anyone can beat anyone in the day. What would you sort of say it takes mentally to to do it? Everything you've got. It. Mentally, it's probably the most brutal place um, you could be in snooker-wise uh, for an amateur that's wanting to turn pro because it's livelihood. It's, yeah. it's people's livelihood. They want to turn pro that bad that they give everything on the table. So you can be it. I've seen matches there take seven hours. Because it is just out because, and out, toe-to-toe war. Because both players do not want to come off that table without yeah. winning. So we... It, it's a harsh tournament because yeah. you lose, you turn up for the three matches, don't play very well, you've got another year. You've got mm. to wait a year to be able to play. A long time, isn't it? Yeah. So if you've got that disappointment, you're carrying for a year, yeah. and we mentioned before and touched upon it, do they still do the challenge tour? Is that still a thing or not really? Uh, yeah, they do, but now they do the challenge tour and then the top 16 off the challenge tour have to play a playoff for just one tour place. To turn pro? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Uh, second question is, how do you cope with it being a solo sport, for example, practicing by yourself, being tour on yourself, and what do you think keeps you motivated? Um, it's a good question because it, it is very hard. Um, <clears throat> I think snooker is one of the um, most difficult sports because you are on your own. When you're playing, you're on your own. Um, I know a lot of players that travel on their own. And to go into tournaments, play the tournaments, and after the tournaments, it, it, it's very, very difficult to be able to keep your emotions to yourself. Mm. Um, you know, you turn up on a day and you're not quite on it. Mentally, because snooker is probably 80% mental when you're at a good level of the game, if you're not quiet on it mentally, there's no point in getting your cue out. Yeah. 
because do you almost know before you do you're going to get beat sort of thing or yeah you I don't think there's any players on the tour that would say that they've won a tournament or won half decent matches where they haven't been 100% mental Mm. because you lose a match and it's on your mind for ages because let's say you've put that two weeks practice in so you're mentally right you're playing well yeah and you go out and you you make a fool of yourself yeah that affects you mentally going into the next tournament going into practice the next day dents your confidence almost yeah so to, to cope with it i know a lot of different players have different ways so i think my way of coping with the mentality of playing snooker and going to tournaments is kind of forget i'm a snooker player mm. so when i'm here i'm a snooker player at the yeah. club practicing or at a tournament yeah. When I'm away, I don't, yeah. want, I don't want watch it. I don't yeah. want to know about yeah, snooker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you kind of... Separate you, it. Yeah, you're kind of living two different lives mm. in a way. Um, but coping with it while you're out there, you know, like breathing techniques, they've helped me massively. Um, there's a lot of different mental coaches out there that work yeah. for different people. So I've learned different ways of being able to cope with nervousness yeah different ways of coping with a bad mess a bad safety shot yeah even simple things like not even watching the table when your opponent's at the table when you're sat in your seat so one one thing for me yeah is when i'm in my seat i never look at the table i'll pick one i'll pick one point in a room so like <laughs> when we play in arenas is i'll probably look up at i don't know a table light yeah and i'll just focus on that table light until and do my breathing techniques until in my head I'm mm. ready to go again. Mm. Or I'll stupid little things like I'll look at the rest underneath the table. Yeah. And in my head, I'll even as stupid as it sounds, I'll try and calculate how long that rest is in my head. Yeah. I'll Does think, it take oh, your mind off yeah, oh, that rest what you're putting at the table? 48 inches, 48 and a half, something like that. Yeah. Breathing technique. And then if the, my opponent misses, I'm refreshed then. I'm mm. ready to go. Some people have different ways. I know people like, I mentioned Stephen Maguire, I was talking with him, and when he plays, he, he can be a very angry character. That's his way of refreshing himself, letting yeah. it out, giving it a bang, yeah, yeah, sitting yeah. in his chair, yeah. saying a few words. Yeah. When he's got all of that out, he's ready to go. Yeah, yeah. I'm the opposite, if I let yeah. something out, it plays on my mind now. Yeah, yeah. So I have to do, like even thinking about what I might have for my tea, I'll sit in the <laughs> I've chair. heard that before, yeah. If I've missed, if I've missed a, a dolly red over the pocket, I'll have a couple of seconds, let it out in my head, sit in my chair and think, oh, fancy fish and chips tonight, I think. Yeah. And then I'll look at the table and think, right, okay, that's gone now. Let's go again. I think we are starting to see it a lot more. I mean, I think the one player that I've noticed it in the most in the past 12 months is definitely Mark Allen. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, he's always been a phenomenal player you know, that I've always liked. I've been lucky enough to meet him at an exhibition a few years ago in Manchester. But when I watch him now, he almost, I've noticed it between when the frame's finished and then the next frame's about to start, he sits there and he just goes with closed eyes and he imagines, I think he said it before in interviews, he imagines the last time he played well or whatever, the last time he felt good. And it sort of almost seems to reset him. Yeah. And I'll be honest with you, even at the level that I play, I, I do that sometimes. If I'm playing someone and I'm not playing well and I'm expecting to win, or like you were saying before, you know, it starts to work against you mentally, I close my eyes 
And I take myself back to maybe three or four days ago when I played well in practice. And I think it's the same table. It's yeah. the same six pockets. It's the same 15 reds. You know, it's just you've got to take yourself out of that match scenario. Yeah. And however it works for you, it works. Yeah. So, so what, one thing I kind of taught myself how to do, and that's worked massively for me, is when I'm sitting in my chair... Because I'll think back to a time of I have played well, like Mark Allen suggested, but I, I hear it mm. in my head. So with snooker, if you've not watched it or if you have watched it, everyone goes on about timing of the ball. It sounded well. And you know, like when I play a good shot, it sounds good. You mm. can hear the crisp sound of it. Yeah. So when I'm sitting in my chair, I'll try and replay that shot so I can hear how wow. well I've hit that sound. Yeah. So when, when I kind of hear it, your body will naturally try and do that again. Yeah. So because I've heard how well of it that shot four days ago. You try and recreate that when and you And I've heard match. it hit the sound of the pocket when yeah. it hits the back of the pocket. Yeah. Naturally, I'll, I'll think, right, and he recreate that. Yeah. So that's a kind of good way to reset and get in that good mindset. Of, yeah. I did that four days ago. I'm doing it now. I don't think there's a sound better when you're a snooker player than hearing the ball oh, no. smack the back of brass or whatever it is these days oh. that they have with the leather you know when you when you fire one in and you know, before you used to play football when you catch a volley with your foot and you oh. that comes off it and you get that feeling you don't even need to look at it you know that that's hit the back of the net oh, with yeah. some power but when when you hit a blue in the center of the pocket or yeah. any ball but yeah. especially a blue into the middle oh yeah it's <laughs> beautiful uh next question not as serious this one what is the funniest thing you've ever seen in snooker ever seen in snooker I've got one when we were in Portugal it wasn't in snooker but it was right. kind of to do with snooker okay. we were in Portugal for the European Championships and one of my very very good friends Dylan Henry, mm-hmm. yep. he won the tournament to turn pro right. and you've gone there to watch him well I was playing oh you were playing right, okay. in the quarters or something right but he was in the final. So you stuck around to watch him play the final? Yeah. But yeah. we'd gone for a walk down the beach. There was me, my dad, Hamem, Hussein, a couple of us. Yeah. Now, I thought the final started at four. Okay. But it started at three. Oh, no. So we'd gone for a walk, and I thought, oh, I'll, I'll be back for five. Yeah. I said, I'll watch, like, the middle to the end. Yeah. So walking down this beach for about a mile and a half away. Yeah. Looked at my phone, it's the last frame. I think Dylan's 5-2 up. What, had you seen on like the uh, WST app that it was the last frame? Yeah, so I, I was oh, no. watching the scores. Just got the scores out because it was about R4-5, oh, so I thought, oh, one, two, now <laughs> I'll, I'll have slow stroll back. 5-2 <laughs> up, I thought, I told him I'd be there at the oh, end because no. I wanted to, to see him win. And were you still a mile and a half away? Yeah, so he's one of my best mates, so I thought <laughs> no. I won't be there with his mum because we're really good friends with his mum. And oh, I looked no. down and it's like, just started, so I thought, oh, whatever. I'll turn around and have a slow stroll back. Yeah. Looked down, he's about 30 points ahead, and I've looked a oh, mile no. away. So I've sprinted down this beach, fast as I could. I said to me that, I said, I'm going, I'm going. Yeah, all right. So I'm sprinting down this beach, and there's a little Portuguese family sitting on this beach. Um, so me being me decided, run into this kid's sandcastle. So the kid starts crying. <laughs> Did you be able to obliterate the sandcastle? Oh, it, 
it probably <laughs> I was running that fast the sand probably hit the arena before so this kid started crying his eyes out oh he's only about two so this Portuguese man comes running up to me <laughs> and I'm stood there and he's shouting shouting right in Portuguese in Portuguese <laughs> like I can speak a bit of Spanish so Portuguese is a bit similar yeah. so I could understand a bit of the words he was saying yeah. they weren't very nice yeah so because I haven't turned around and said sorry, he's going at his in my face. And I just looked at him and went, snooker final, got to go, bye. <laughs> so I've run down he's the ruined beach. his kid's day trip at the beach. So I've turned around and started sprinting. He's following me behind because he's thought I've said something horrible to him. So, oh, because you've replied in English. Yeah. So I. Oh, right. Okay. So, so because I, you've not said sorry and then gone about what you're doing yeah you've said snooker the final i've got to watch me mate yeah he's thought you've been a bit cocky in yeah. there right because i've just turned around and yeah. run off yeah so he's chasing me so i've stopped turning around <laughs> and he's giving me all this verbal again and in my head i'm going are you all running by this time you with your dad no you it's with... just me on my own just you oh so you left them and just oh it. yeah right okay and he's shouting at me again so in my head i'm thinking spanish what can i say in spanish that he might understand so i've said something to him and he just looked at me, gave me the two fingers. <laughs> so I sprinted, sprinted in the arena and slammed open the door, packed full of people. I've got sweat dripping down my face. I've got sand all up my legs and my feet. And he's on the last ball to win or something. As I walked in, he spotted red, black, and he won it. Literally? Literally. You just made in, it? Just made wow. it. So then he's won. He's got the trophy. And he asked yeah. me and mum to come. Yeah. Here's mum to come in and have photos with him. While you're covered in sweat and sand. And he looks at me and says, what the hell have you done? And I said, listen, let's have these photos. <laughs> let's go to your that. room, have a drink. I'll tell you him in. So I told him the story. He was in stitches. Oh, my God. So that was... That is that is amazing. I know. Did he find it funny, like, yeah? Oh, he's crying yeah. his eyes out. Did you go and buy a like, little kid and ice cream after, or did you not even think oh, about no. that? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, amazing. Um, I think we have got one more as well. So, oh, we've got two more, sorry. So, the other one is, what is the most angry you have ever seen somebody whilst playing snooker? Um, two people come to mind. One person I know who smashed up a scoreboard. An actual scoreboard. Yeah, a big. It was one. You know the old yeah. oak ones with yeah. like the um, numbers are like five inches big. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah someone got and one yeah, of the them. big white things that point yeah. down to them. Yeah, someone yeah. took one of them off the wall and literally smashed it to bits. Oh yeah. Why? What? What? What had led to that? Something had happened with the scoreboard in which someone right. had put points on more than they shouldn't. <laughs> he didn't realise, and. They couldn't resolve the situation, so he just smashed the scoreboard. So he resolved up. it himself by saying, Well, there you go, it never existed. I'm going to smash everything yeah, up. Yeah, he smashed the scoreboard up. Wow. And then turned around, potted the blue, and walked out. <laughs> that was. <laughs> what? So he smashed the scoreboard up? He, and he, then he potted the blue? He smashed what? the scoreboard up, turned around, and said, I only need the blue, potted the blue, <laughs> put his cue away, and just walked out. Because in his argument, he would have said, I don't need the blue to win. Yeah. The guy would have been saying, no, no, you don't, because I've got this many points, you need the blue, pink and black. Yeah. So he smashed the scoreboard yeah. up, put in the blue, yeah. and walked out. Yeah, but he away, didn't shake hands, and just walked out. <laughs> didn't shake hands. And then the other wow. one is a chap who comes in this club, Michael, where we're at, 
Um, he has got to be the hottest head person I've ever met. Right. He's no good at snooker, but he knows he's no good at snooker. <laughs> but he is, his head just flips right. for the switch. A couple of times, I'll tell you two, two of the things he's done. A, he brings his own balls in. Yeah. They're like 1Gs, are they? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's no good, but he brings his own balls in. Yeah, yeah. So he's, the part. he's playing his mate, blah, blah, blah. Um, couldn't put a ball on this day. He can't put many balls on a good day, but he couldn't put anything on this day. <laughs> so he playing whatever. I'm playing a couple of tables where he's effing and jeffing, shouting, everything's going wrong, all this, no luck. Yeah. So he, he picks a wire ball up, picks a black ball up, and just throws him at his mate. <laughs> and he's, he's ma- he makes him nothing wrong. He makes love snooker. Just out, comes and has a jolly. Thinks he's oh, only played a couple of times. Just picks the white ball up, throws it at Where his Where's it hit him? White, the white at the leg. <laughs> and I think the black caught him on the back of his shoulder. Oh, so it was, wow. So it was nasty. Yeah. Um, I could have killed him. I haven't seen his mate ever since. I bet you haven't. <laughs> I, bet he's, I bet he's still literally traumatised from yeah. that. Um, and another time is he javelined his cue into the wall, but it was plasterboard wall, so his cue went through. straight through the wall. <laughs> but he, it had got stuck halfway through. Yeah. So it was like it was like a cartoon film. Yeah. It went in and it was just bobbling <laughs> out the wall. And he, he had an F and Jeff, went toilet. Grabbed his cue out the wall, took it out, and started playing. Carried on playing. Carried on playing. Wow. Yeah. I mean, snooker, for those people that watch it on TV, as you said before, it looks easy. It yeah. definitely isn't. No. And I think, you know, we've all had days where we think, I even feel like I've played this game ever in my life. No. Nothing's going right. I feel like I'm not standing right. I'm not bridging right. I can't cue. Nothing's going in. But yeah, I think I was a bit hot headed, but maybe not that hot headed. I think I've. I've kicked a chalk and stuff and other things, but I've not really done anything else. But yeah, um, and then finally, the last question. It's a bit of a, a bit of a good question. This actually, obviously, but I'm a snooker fan. Is was there ever a rule that you were playing a game that's caught you out that you didn't know about at the time? Yeah, there is a couple weird rules. So the, there is a free ball rule in snooker. It doesn't caught me out, but. It, it's a bit of like a, a weird thing. I can't remember it fully still, even though I'm on the tour. I should yeah. know all the rules. <laughs> and it, it is something like, with a free ball, if you can't see it because of a knuckle, it is a free ball. But if the knuckle wasn't there, it's not a free ball. It's mm. a dead weird rule. Yeah. <clears throat> so I've seen that catch a few players out. Yeah. <clears throat> but it, the one that has caught me out was... At the the World Six Reds right. when I played in that is in the Six Reds it's a little bit different. You can't snooker behind the ball. You nominate, so you can't roll up to the green because okay. that is the ball you've snookered behind basically. Yeah. yeah. So we're playing and playing, and I've I've got a situation where I can roll up, but I know I can't. So I've I've stunned the white in behind the brown and the greens come round the table, not the brown out the way. <laughs> and the greens finished. So in front of the white, yeah. but it's not snookered on all the balls. Right, okay. So we he couldn't see a red 
Yeah. But he was snooking on most of the balls by the green. Right. So I've sat down and ref called foul. And I says, why Why is he to foul? Um, and we've come to the table and I've said, because he can partially see the red, but it was snooked from the brown. So I said, well, why is that a foul? Mm. And he said, because the green is the closest ball yeah. to snookering. So I had this massive uppie of our thought that is not right at all. Mm. And, I, and I was, we're having a back and forth. And the ref looked down and he says, well, he can't see any reds. He said, but because the green is the closest ball to being, being snookered and you called the green, mm-hmm. that's a foul. And I wasn't having it. <laughs> I kicked up massively. <laughs> and blah, blah, blah. We had loads of back and forth. Talk about 15 minutes. Did you have to get a second opinion of ref or anything like that? Yeah, I, yeah. I did ask yeah. for one. Yeah, but because in six reds, if it's a foul, it's ball in hand. You can move the ball wherever you want. Yeah, and it was an important part of the game. I think yeah. it was decider maybe or something like that. So I kicked up this massive upheaval, and it was quite embarrassing because the second ref come and said, "Oh, Jensen," and he explained it like this, and I just looked and went, "Oh yeah, you're right." <laughs> so for twenty minutes, I looked like an absolute <laughs> idiot arguing over something that was clearly wrong yeah. but it's one of them weird rules and because mm. with six reds now there's a lot of money and right. we've done a couple of tournaments now and there's quite a lot of money in. yeah it's a bit of a quicker version of snooker isn't yeah, it? it's, yeah it's good for fans and stuff like that but because there was good money in it and stuff it's quite a big event so because that caught me out my head was gone and it was a ball in hand and I lost because of it mm. so it's one of them weird rules but with normal snooker the change rules like no you can a foul and a miss even though you can draw mm. whereas last year it wasn't yeah so i've been done by that yeah yeah well you thought it wasn't I think the first match of the it. season on the tour i was 35 ahead with 35 on one red left and i got him snookered and the ref said foul and a miss but i, I just thought oh well, he's drawing i can't put it back mm. and i've played a shot left him on and he's cleared up <sighs> won the black ball respot and then I've come off the match and thought, oh my God, yeah, you can have it back now. Tough lesson to learn, isn't it? Yeah, but... so every time now I look at the score and think, right, okay, you can draw, put it back. It's quite a historical game, isn't it? And I think most of the rules that are there in place probably date back hundreds of years, so or 100 years certainly. So a lot of them now, they're trying to change it for yeah. the good of the game and everything. Yeah. But uh, no. Well, listen, it's been absolutely phenomenal talking to you. Thank, Thank you, you for taking your time today for us. Um, hopefully you can follow Jensen next season, where he'll be looking to stay on the tour. They start July, you said? Yeah, about middle of July. Yeah. So you can follow him on there. Are you on any social medias? I mean, I know I've got you on Facebook, but you on anything like Twitter or Instagram or anything like that? Uh, not Twitter, no, but Instagram. Um, it's just my name, Jensen Kendrick, or my snooker account is Jensen Kendrick Snooker. Yeah. Yeah, so you can follow him on there. But no, a lovely, lovely lad, and we wish him all the best of luck for next season. So thank you very much, Jensen. Thank you much for having me. If you made it this far, <laughs> thank you very much for listening to the podcast. Like I said at the beginning, I really enjoyed recording that. Jensen was such a gentleman, such a nice lad. And like I said in the end of the podcast, wish him all the best of luck with his career and for next season for him. I would aim to do about one podcast, maybe once every seven to ten days. Um, so I'll keep you posted with that. If you did like the podcast, 
and you thought it was worth listening to, please do me a favour, please like it on whichever platform you listen to it on, whether it be Spotify, Apple Music, and please try and share it with your friends as well. There will be loads of different topics that we discuss around life. The next one that we'll be discussing on Thursday next week will be death. That will probably be around about Saturday, Sunday again when that will be released. What I would say as well with that one, if you have any questions, the lady that I'm going to interview worked in a funeral home for quite a long time, so she's got quite a good insight into that side of things. So if there's anything that you'd like to ask questions about, whether that be to do with um, death itself, sort of funerals, what happens behind the scenes, anything to do with spiritual stuff. I'm not really a spiritualist, but I do like a bit of spiritual stuff. That'll probably come across when we do the interview as well. So yeah, listen, have a good day. Have a good week. Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you soon.